0: It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we whaler men undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic around with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the
1: girls of Old Maui. Rolling down to Old Maui, me boys rolling down to Old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling
0: down to Old Welcome Maui. to the final part of uh, Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements, a Appendix. podcast reckoning. <laughs>
2: Appendix goes in there somewhere, Fuck. but I don't know where. <laughs>
0: uh, append- mo- Higgledy-piggledy-whale statements, appendix six, colon, uh, a textual reckoning, colon, part four? I don't <laughs> know what we're calling this stupid thing. Dave
2: Malloy's t- Moby Dick 2019, a musical reckoning.
0: This is This is the fourth episode of our <laughs> ongoing series, Um, and we're recording this, like... Again. Yeah, we're re-recording this, because we recorded it before, and then...
2: Technical difficulties occurred.
0: There was some computer disaster, and we lost part of the recording, and then, uh... And then life happened.
2: uh, Yeah.
0: a couple months passed, um...
2: We sort of detoxed from the Meloisical.
0: Yeah, (laughs) lots of different life stuff stuff happened for... I think pretty much everyone involved in this recording. <laughs> um, yeah,
2: I think I think that's fair. Yeah, except me. My life it is it's static like, and fine. unmoving. <laughs> all the
0: time.
2: Yeah, my eternal nature aside. Yeah, yeah,
0: but Ben is the fixed point. Ben is the measure of all things, as we've the often fixed discussed. Point,
2: yes. Anyways, uh, uh, but
0: but um, <laughs> aside from that, like anomaly. Um, yeah, we are finally here. We are back. We are ready to talk about uh, part four of Moby Dick, A Musical Reckoning, The American Hearse. Woo! <sighs> and I guess to maybe kind of do a final wrap-up of what we think about the show in general. But yeah,
2: I think so. Hopefully uh, we're not going to spend the entire time attempting to invent better Moby Dick musicals, but we are going to try that at least a couple times.
3: It's I hard feel to like resist. It- just instinct at this point because it's so easy to make a better Moby Dick musical. Yeah,
2: no, this is this it really is, is like many kinds of manure. It's a fertile soil. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: wh- uh, I'm sure, I would hope that nobody is coming into this series with this episode, but nonetheless, uh, why don't you introduce yourselves, uh, Danny? Hi, I'm Just Danny. Like say
3: hi. Hi. Uh, I I was subjected to the Moby Dick musical, and that's why I'm in this podcast. I and we have really a musical. It. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, it's good to detox from it, even so long after watching it. I, we watch it on the premiere, and uh, yes, yep. I have a musical theater background, and uh, that's why I'm here to offer some, uh, you know, opinions in that sphere.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, we also have Clay.
4: Hi, I'm Clay. Um... I know fewer things than everyone. <laughs> no,
0: that's oh, so no. not true. No, that's so
3: not true, Clay.
4: <laughs> no, um, you
3: remember the you s- visuals. I, rem- the- I
4: remember the visuals. I have a really good memory. Um, and I'm gonna get really, really angry over the course of this recording. And it's my computer <sighs> yeah. that exploded. Um.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Your computer so we're recording was subjected it. Objected to this musical and discussing it, and it killed it. And we're very sorry. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um. So yeah,
2: uh... The American Hearse.
0: Yeah, this is like the end of the story. This is like the point where this is the... They actually, the climax, the, they do the yeah. thing.
2: It's, it's funny, something that is definitely true here is this really is specifically looking at the last section of Moby Dick the novel. Because it starts with the song, The Pacific, which is also a reference to the chapter, The Pacific, which is very much bracketing the final section of Moby Dick, where they are on bear with me, the Pacific Ocean. Uh, And there's very much a sense of like, okay, we are now within the space where this final events can occur. We are now in the final chapter of the story. Um, And, you know, in that sense, this is cohesive in some respects, but uh, something that, re-listening to it again really made me realize and as we're going into this i just wanted to mention it this is a weirdly paced weirdly flat and weirdly organized section of the musical like as much as the first three sections which our audience will now have you know heard our opinions on are variously emotionally terrorizing and artistically terrible or and are just kind of mm, poorly constructed Bad. they all have clear sort of designs to how they function the first one introduces everything and sets things up the second one is like going through the various characters it has sort of a a, almost a vaudeville style to its various things going on and the third one is pip (laughs) (laughs) and it's pip and uh this one really feels like it's just getting through everything like you just gotta slam down the rest of the narrative to get through it to the end And even in doing so, it often feels kind of limp.
4: Yeah. I, first of all, I think, I don't know if I noticed this last time, but on the genius, there's someone who wrote all the stuff up on genius. The Pacific song is missing a bunch of, I believe a bunch of Ishmael just kind of talking and being like, well, so we've been, yeah, we saw the Pacific and I'm tired and I can look right through my hand. Um, Yeah. There's yeah. this
0: whole like monologue that opens the the part, um, mm-hmm. and, and that really feels
2: like it should be part of the lyrics for the song. Like honestly, because it. Mm-hmm. It, it sets the whole thing up.
0: Dude, yeah, that's... the places the places where the the whoever put this on Genius decided that it wasn't lyrics, and the places where they decided that this speech, like these these words that are not sung, count as lyrics and get to go on the Genius. I I do not understand the logic behind that.
3: Yeah, no, it was very random. And, uh, like, we do have some points to make about the, how Dave Malloy uses dialogue versus sung things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But that's a whole other conversation that we're going to get to when we get to that point with all the speeches.
0: Y- yeah. Well, you
2: mean the entire part. You mean this <laughs> yes. entire part. There are yeah, a lot of
0: speeches in this bit, yeah. Um, it's all talking. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, I it mean, does. Uh,
2: and then also, it has sextant. Sextet. I keep calling it Sextant.
1: Sextant.
0: <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the opening of this part is, yeah, this whole, like, speech from Ishmael about, like, um, the kind of exhaustion and the sameness and the kind of, um, way that people were, like, ground down by three years at sea. Um. (sighs) So, we mentioned this in the the
2: previous recording, (laughs) but I- I really want to, and I want to return to it, but we now know our answer for this, but (laughs) three years at sea in a 2019 musical where (laughs) they are at sea for one year, because that's how long it takes to sail around from... New England to the Pacific on a whaling voyage.
4: Wait, I forgot this and I'm angry again.
2: <laughs> yes. What? Yes. So, yes. So, so now that you've... Okay, that's perfect. That's perfect. So why do you think 2019 Moby Dick, A Musical Reckoning, changes it from a year, which is the actual amount of time it takes, to three years?
3: Well, if you remember the year twenty nineteen, a very important event happened in American history, and specifically United States American history, in twenty sixteen, which was three years <laughs> before twenty nineteen. Can you
0: guess yes. what that was? Oh yes. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, the um the ship is the Trump administration, I mm-hmm. guess. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's it's wild and when I was first, you know, listening to this uh this bootleg and there were these moments with uh, with Ahab soliloquizing, and he, you know, he talks about how he sort of captured the crew, and he gets this more like aggressive and energetic presentation and way of talking when he's talking to himself. Which I can't say I fault as a thing for Ahab to do. It makes sense. He does have these soliloquies about how he's captured them all. His one cogged wheel fits all their, you know, circles or whatever or whichever the direction was, but. The thing about it is that I said, I said to Mark as we were listening, holy shit, I think Ahab is Trump. And Mark said, how would you possibly think that just from this? That that seems like such a leap and also such a terrible idea.
0: Yeah, I was like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I get that he's kind of bombastic, but I don't think we're supposed to think that he's a Trump-esque demagogue. And then... And then!
2: <laughs> and then three years.
0: Yeah, and I was like, well, you're fucking right. He is Trump, I guess. <laughs>
2: And, like, oh, God, I I will get into this further as we go on, but I think the basic element is that there's this idea of, like, the American hearse, the American ship that is the Pequod, which is all of America. That's a stated in, like, the opening of the musical by Ishmael Molloy actor guy, like, the, the comp, combined character of Ishmael narrator and Ishmael present-day person. That, you know, all of America is on this ship, the Pequod, and given everything else the fact that like they have such a straightforwardly traditional Ahab he's a white guy of like you know with a graying beard and a bombastic appearance and so on and there's just a very strong sense of like this is this is like the traditional story the original version the whiteness of the whiteness of the whale the 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 trump in this case in that there's a demagogue taking this ship and hurling it into danger and you know, causing all these problems, but it's such a bad fit. It's
3: God. like, and, and, and he, Dave and tries to have that woke opinion of twenty nineteen, like Trump's America, of with the <laughs> line, "We just became the worst of what we were." Yes, that of like
2: so often in this he, section, uh, in this part.
3: Yeah, like, cuz like I think it, that's it,
2: in the Oh, is that in uh, That is in the lyrics. Oh, that's it's No, in, I was yeah. saying it's in the lyrics. Is that in um the Pacific? Yep. Yeah,
3: it is in the Pacific. Yeah. Pacific oh, cool, cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um
1: Right. Because right, yeah, like that
3: <laughs> All good. That was kind of the part where uh well, you know, people were saying like Because so many people wanted to treat, like, the Trump administration as sort of, like, that single point where everything went south. And so some people rightfully were like, well, I mean, things were already pretty shit. This was just, like, a magnification of all the shit that was already there. Yeah. And then, so Dave Malloy was like, hey, I can put that in my musical. And then he (laughs) did.
2: Yeah. There's also a way that it's like, like, what's the, the affect of this song, which is a really drowsy song, like, literally there's lines about drowsiness because it's, it's taking this moment of being becalmed from the original novel where like they've, they've sailed into the Pacific and things are like quiet and trance-like. And it results in this like weird thing where, you know, it's explicitly, you know, three years there's this Trump administration thing going on, but it's also like nothing's happened for so long. And I don't know about you, but I, I did not experience the Trump administration as a lack of events.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. there's literally, Uh he's quoting from the novel here, but there's literally the line, no news, no gazettes, no startling accounts of the commonplace deluding us into excitement. And like, in the book, that's talking about how, yeah, when you're at sea, like, it is monotonous. You have no news. And then like, to be like, the years 2016 to 2019 were years with no news to you? (gasps) Yeah. <laughs> like,
3: it, it was that very strange idea some people had of like, well, I'm so tired of looking at the news because everything is bad and everything is just so horrible all the time that it's kind of, you know, coalesced boring. into this numbness that I feel. And a lot of people were like, is it? What? What I mean, do you mean that's how I you can see it? I
2: understand numbness, but numbness from being repeatedly bludgeoned is very different mm-hmm. from numbness of just sitting there doing nothing. What's fascinating to me about this song is that if it happened a year later, it would have worked almost better because, as various and horrible as the events of the pandemic have been, the idea of like we're all sitting at home not doing anything as like part of the crushingness of it actually fits but this was 2019
0: yeah yeah um (laughs) and uh yeah i mean i think part of what's going on here is that there is some emotional core of exhaustion yeah that malloy first of all that is like in the novel that malloy sees in the novel and wants to make use of Mm -hmm. and he's like ah I also feel exhausted after three years of the Trump administration. Let me draw a line between these two exhaustions. (laughs) And he's not at all interested in, like, okay, but what are the particular qualities of the exhaustion in the novel? How is it brought into being? Does it actually bear any resemblance to the exhaustion that I feel right now? Like, what?
2: It even even goes further than that. And this is, I'm going to draw on a couple lines from the song. Like, so, okay, first of all, I have to mention that there's a weird resetting before the song begins, before the lyrics on Genius, of Pip's madness hung over the ship during those three years. Pip had become half-horrible. And, like, that's a phrase used about Pip, that he'd become half-horrible. But Pip's madness is not the madness that the Pequod is oppressed by, not the thing that hangs over everyone. It's, like, barely on people's minds, because Ahab's madness is hanging over everything. Like... Pip is not the central figure of why the Pequod feels this way in the novel in any sense. Ahab is. And there are some gestures towards this where the text of the book being quoted directly into the lyrics gets through. Like, you know, um, and uh, I'm trying to find the specific line in the lyrics, but it's right. Joy and sorrow, hope and fear have been ground to finest dust, powdered in the clamped mortar of our captain's iron soul. That's describing this period at the end of the book where Ahab remains on deck at all hours. His purpose is so immense that nobody can even have emotions other than pursuing that purpose. He's, like, absolutely obliterated them with the immensity of his quest. And obviously this is horrifying and, like, terrifying and exhausting, but it's really different from the, like, oh, we were all so bored and also kind of, like, worried about Pip And also, uh, something about Ahab, I guess. He's always on deck. But the the intensity of Ahab is not coming through here. Because other things are being given a a higher billing. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh. Section also rhymes the word waves with waves. Oh yeah, it does. (laughs) (laughs) That,
2: That, those lines, I think that's like made up of different quotations from the novel that had been arranged to rhyme, and he was like, well, I can't rhyme waves with any other word, and I want this bit to rhyme on, like, everything else.
1: Yeah. <sighs> mm.
3: It's weird. It's, it's not good.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: Like, I, I'm i just continually upset by this, because uh, Clay and I re-listened to, uh, to this whole part,
2: yep,
1: yep. and
3: I forgot just how... I mean, it's poorly written, obviously, but I just forgot how bad it sounds.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it doesn't it, yeah. even
3: sound good.
2: It's yeah, not same. even, like, musically fun. It's as boring as the thing it's describing.
4: Yeah, parts, parts one and two say we have said what we would about them, but at least listening to them, you're like, oh, cool, I'm listening to a musical.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
4: This whole part, one, because it overly relies and uh, we'll talk about this, it overly relies on just straight deliberate dialogue and a lot of it read straight out of the book. And also because all of these songs are so musically dull, that even all the way through to, you know, the part that everybody knows about Moby Dick and the part that is bombastic and fantastic and Mm -hmm. I have known... I don't know for how long I've known what Ahab yells there, mm-hmm. just out of cultural osmosis. Yeah, even that's kind of boring. Yeah, and and yeah,
3: because it's I I feel like what Dave Malloy is trying to do, and I we can I guess this is a good bridge into sextet, where he tries to make the harmonies sound discordant. He tries to bring together people singing different melodies and people singing different things so it all sounds kind of chaotic and you know in a rush and like wow look the chaos of the pequod but it just doesn't sound good like I've the the, the harmonies just sound bad like I I was telling Clay like I can't tell if the singers are like sharp at certain points or if it's just this harmony and these chords just don't work together and I, I cannot fathom which one of these it is because uh like okay if you guys have watched the the hit movie, The Nightmare Before Christmas... Um,
1: <laughs> I, I mean, it's,
2: I, I enjoyed it.
3: it I, it's, a, it's a movie, and it's very fun, and Danny Elfman did the music. And Danny Elfman in that movie, I feel like, kind of exemplifies how it is possible to create harmonies that sound discordant and a little bit weird in a way that's still musically coherent oh, yeah, and still be- fits with the larger melody. Like, I'm thinking especially of the vampires... When they kinda of sing together, it's like a it's kinda of like a, a strange different chord that is still in the melody but feels a little different it's, and it's supposed to it's the and it still music sounds like of music. The night. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh like Dave Malloy's trying to do that and he doesn't and it's it's just bad. I don't know. Someone needs to tell this man that it just doesn't sound good.
2: Yeah, I mean it's a lot like his um in my opinion, it feels like that's a very similar phenomenon to his usage of 19th century novel language just in the song. You've got, you know, lines of where he's taking, you know, lines from Moby Dick that are in no way musical, in no way like lyrics, like, you know, uh a way I have of regulating the circulation and, you know, recovering my bile or whatever the line is from Loomings that he has set to music and he manages to technically make it fit into meter but it still doesn't sound good, but the achievement of technically fitting it into meter or technically fitting it into a song is clearly what he wants. And similarly, I think something going on with Sextant, which getting into Sextant's a whole thing, um, I think that he just wanted to have a bunch of these things fitting together, a bunch of these different, like, melodies coming together. And the fact that when they came together, while it was technically connecting, it didn't sound good doesn't seem to have occurred to him Mm-hmm. yeah uh, okay a quick thing about pacific before we leave that one behind and tra- travel onwards it's really funny to me that he put a muppets treasure island style cabin fever song in this and then made it incredibly down tempo and boring <laughs> like like the cabin fever song is not a bad thing like the idea that you have a period in pirate movies sea movies where they're in a calm and everyone's sort of flattened out on the deck and not doing anything it shows up in a number of Moby Dick movie adaptations when it's really not a huge part of the novel because there's always something to do on the Pequod in terms of like just work but it's a great visual thing for communicating how long an ocean voyage is it creates an interesting space for stuff but The reason the Muppets Treasure Island Cabin Fever musical works as much as it does is that it's a response to everything being completely dead, which is to just go absolutely buck wild. This is a response to everything being dead, to admittedly slightly more in character for Ishmael, softly wave from side to side while going, everything
1: sucks.
2: (laughs) 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 It's just not very good. Uh drama. Is it's this a drama? <laughs> I, I, it's attempting to be. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, yeah. And I still have no idea what that thing about, I can see right through my hand is supposed to be, like...
0: Yeah, I don't think that's in the novel, is no, it?
2: No, it? it's it's really not. It's like his under- He's
3: making a Marty McFly Back to the Future right <laughs> that scene where
2: Marty McFly can see through his hand. I don't know. It's... The thing about that is that it feels like such an alien take on Ishmael's internal experience that I just, I'm like, did we read the same book, Dave Malloy? And it's, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I don't know what it's doing, I don't know why it's there, and I I do not see it, and I will not interact with it. (laughs) (sighs) I do not see it. Exactly. Um, Okay, uh, I guess... Quique-weg, um believes he's going to die. Uh, he falls ill. That occurs. That sets up sextant. Uh, we meet the carpenter and the blacksmith to set up sextant. It is what se- sextant, not sextant. Sextant. <laughs> no. Sextant. Ben.
0: The thing is, the thing you I could tell because I know you that you were saying sextant, but I also was like, no one else will know. They'll all just hear sextant. They'll be fine. And you had and, to. Yeah,
2: yeah. I blew up my own spot. Uh, just uh,
0: just mumble it for the rest of the recording. It'll be fine.
2: Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Uh, anyways, the, the lead-in to sextet.
0: Oh, right. The, the whole, like, speech with Ahab with yeah, about there's, the...
2: there's that, and there's also Ahab calling for a new leg. Yes. And I want to <laughs> briefly, uh, you know, shift attention to Clay, because I want to know, what was the, like... Cause you're our, our visuals expert here.
1: <laughs> what
2: was the like build up to I need a new leg with uh Ahab? Like was there any sort of visual or like event-wise explanation for why he's just suddenly shouting that here?
4: No? Cool. No, there, it was
3: He he wasn't even limping anymore from what I remember.
4: Oh yeah, his the the amount so it... If you look at the costumes, that I think you could see little hints of it on Genius because they have some pictures. Mm-hmm. His ivory leg is whalebone leg, I guess. It's not technically ivory. No, no, no. no that's it's...
2: ivory. Whalebone is from the baleen. I, I mess this up all the time. Okay. I constantly okay. say, call it Yeah, the bones. the
0: bones of whales are ivory or whale ivory, not whalebone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you were right the first L- ivory. time.
4: Yep, yep. Um, <laughs> so he has this sort of white sheer or like no white like shining as a sheen that's a word I was like sleeve over his leg Mm -hmm. to kind of you know like this is a this is a polished white thing yeah I think I see Um, in one of the genius photos but the thing is that you know I'm not saying he needs to do this but it didn't restrict him much and so the leg you often forgot that it was supposed to be <sighs> a fake leg, I'm mad. or you know, a prosthetic, because it—you it, know—it does its sort of a matter. It was just—it's very difficult. It turns out to not bend your leg.
0: Yeah, yeah. When I mean,
4: you are standing on your unaltered normal
2: leg,
0: yeah. I mean, I'm going
2: to take a strong position here. They should have put him. They should have just put a PVC tube around the actor's leg. Like apologized, said, "Look, this is gonna be uncomfortable, but we need you to not be able to do shit." And to be fair, Pe- does did he lose it? At, he lost it below the knee, right?
0: Uh, that's a matter of discussion in the novel, Ben. Don't yeah. you remember this I, bit? The flask—it it was
4: all the way up to the crotch. Yeah, yeah. But was, I, I believe, was his leg? Like,
0: yeah. So I I remember that there's a I, I'm pretty sure that Ahab's um. There's a conversation between Stubb and Flask about this, about Mm. whether Ahab still has a knee, and I think Stubb's response to that is, I don't know, I've never yet seen him kneel.
2: Yeah, and you know you're right, because there's obviously Ahab is not going to be, like, making the stump section visible. So the idea that we don't know exactly where on Ahab's leg it's missing is, I think, perfectly fair. Illustrations have gone either way, Um, and I know that the carpenter suggests that if he were uh, back on land, he could make a leg with a knee so perfect you could, like, give such a perfect bow to the ladies. Like, you know, it's the carpenter's deal is that he's kind of flippant about everything. And so there's a sense of, like, Maybe it's below the knee, maybe it's above it. The the book is slightly ambiguous. I'm sure you could assemble an argument for, no, it's actually just like this. But for a stage adaptation, putting it up the thigh does a really good job of making it clear how much missing the leg makes Ahab physically, like, incapable of doing the things he wants to do as captain. Incapable of, you know getting just into a whaleboat and taking off when he needs to, of clambering up and down. One thing that gets made a lot of in the novel is the fact that he can't climb a ladder with, a, uh, with an ivory leg. Without two feet, you just can't do it. And so, he can't get up the side of a ship unaided. He can't go into the crow's nest unaided. He has to be hoisted like someone who's not a sailor at all, despite the fact that he's been on the sea for 40 years. Ahab's Physical disability is a huge part of his character, and the fact that they didn't just have the actor very visibly impeded by the ivory leg, I don't even know what to say.
0: I do want to suggest, and I don't actually think this is always, like, a... I don't want to imply that if anything that casts Ahab does not do this, that it is, like, making a major failing here, because I don't... However, you could cast someone who does use, use a, a prosthetic. prosthetic
1: yeah if you want yeah. someone to
0: have a distinctive pattern of motion that reflects one of their legs not being entirely of flesh you could cast someone who just moves that way and i i think like this is complicated because i mean like i don't think ahab is like good disability representation <laughs> i think that's is a ahab silly idea to apply to this character <laughs>
3: Can't wait for that Tumblr essay. The longest
2: thread in the Moby Dick forum history. (laughs) (laughs) Closed after 10,300 posts.
0: (laughs) I I do think it would be really funny, like, because, you know, uh, speaking as someone who's been walking with a cane recently, uh, there is a whole sort of, uh, there is a whole sort of community online of people who would affirmatively identify themselves as, like, bitter cripples. Uh, and... I think it would be great if someone were to, like, reclaim Ahab in that light. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's a little, like... A lot? Because he is he is one of those characters in fiction where his, his physical disability is... I mean, first of all, Ben, you've repeatedly referred to him as being impeded by his leg. Yes. That's the type of language I wouldn't want to hear about.
2: An actual person with a prosthetic.
0: I wouldn't want someone to say that I'm impeded by my cane. I'm helped by my cane. It's a mobility aid. However, the novel does talk about Ahab as, in this sense, impeded by his leg.
2: Yeah, or it's, it's complicated, because on the one hand, his leg does allow him more movement than without it. That's very clear. Like, this is... He needs a new leg sometimes, but also literally the reason he needs a new leg and to to, to move back towards the intro to this song. Um, sorry, I, I just I realized it's a perfect segue and then I ruined it by saying it's a perfect segue. Um, no, in the book, what happens is that he in like a moment of emotion, basically stomped his foot. He like he jumped down into a whaleboat to leave a ship after some after the uh, after Sam, the uh, captain of the Samuel Enderby who um, lost an arm to Moby Dick and was like, well, I'm not going to swear vengeance on a whale because I might lose the other arm. So I'm glad I got away with just this one hammer prosthetic. You know, you live and you learn. And Ahab's like, I will never learn, and I don't plan to live. Goodbye. (laughs) And... Leaving, he wrenches... He's so vehement in his step that he wrenches the uh, the ivory in its socket and, like, breaks the grain and becomes concerned that it will collapse more completely in the future. And so he needs his leg replaced. So there's this specific way that his, like, emotions and personality are so great that the replacement uh, leg, the ivory leg, cannot withstand them the way his flesh leg would have and cannot stand live up to this. And so... There is a way in which, yeah, Ahab is specifically, he is impeded by his leg because it can't be what he wants it to be, and it it limits him in certain ways, though obviously not having a peg leg would limit him significantly more.
0: Yeah, um...
2: But yeah, that's why he's missing the, uh, why he needs the leg replacement in, um, in the book, but here it just sort of seems to happen. Yeah.
3: Yeah, he just... It's like, I want new hair today. It's like, I want a new leg.
4: Yeah. And it was strange because now re-listening to it, and I don't actually know the order these things happen in the book, but re-listening to it, it's weird because in this song, we have the whole new harpoon along with the new leg. And then in the next one, the captain of the Rachel is talking about how you would need like a new harpoon.
2: Yeah, the harpoon has not yet been forged. That whole thing. Yeah, we'll get to that. Also, this is a place where the adaptation fucks up in a really funny way.
0: Okay, but wait. So, Clay, what was your understanding? Or, like, what was it that you were kind of...
4: Oh, I was just going, huh, wait. Are these things actually supposed to happen in this order? i was kind of seeing the seams Mm,
2: yeah because
3: it it felt like a like a forced parallel of forging the harpoon and forging the leg
2: yeah and it's it's interesting because the the actual like creation of the new leg the turning of the new leg by the carpenter which is where we meet the carpenter really uh in the book for in a major way is pretty close to the forging of the harpoon they are quite close together it's sort of Ahab generally preparing himself for Moby Dick, but because this isn't a three-year timescale of just, like, incomprehensible length for no reason, there's a sense of, like, we've arrived at the whaling Grounds, he's getting ready to go. It it makes a lot more sense, given that timescale, at least for me. Um, And also, his sort of leg replacement the book is willing to tell things a little bit out of order. Sometimes it's like, this is what it was like for Ahab to replace his leg, and there's an implication it's close to the chapters near it, but you could read it and go, well, I don't know if months passed in between these things, because we're just discussing things in an order that makes sense to tell them as a story. Sometimes there's very explicit, uh, a-chronological storytelling in Moby Dick, though it's relatively restrained compared to, like, a a more recent novel might do it. Um... In any case, Ahab has to get his leg replaced uh, by the, um, sort of, the craftsman of the ship, the carpenter, the blacksmith, and uh, they're one character, I
0: guess, in this? Yeah, like, I, I, I think that the thing is that the the new leg, the new harpoon... Those things do happen close to each other. The carpenter and Mm -hmm. the blacksmith do have in some ways similar characters. In the novel, which has more time and which has the detail and specificity of a 19th century novel, you can (laughs) understand how these things that feel parallel are also distinct and are contributing to each other somehow. But in the musical, it just feels like they're playing the exact same role. And you're like, so what's going on? Like, why are both of these things happening?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, also the vocal harmony we get a little. it's not great, but it happens <laughs>
3: we, we, we get attempt it's i i I believe we talked about this in uh, version one of act four yep, yep. of the, the the podcast reckoning, um, in that Dave Malloy's a little bit obsessed with the idea of like a blank te mm-hmm.
1: like. He loves a
3: sextet. I believe his new musical about internet addiction has an octet. And Mm -hmm. then there's his song cycle, Ghost Quartet. And I don't think Dave Malloy knows what that means.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh. Yeah. So this like, yeah, this sextet. I'm not sure what the six different parts are, because there's certainly more than six different characters singing. And it's also not like a combination of like six distinct like song like like there's not like six different lines that all get sung at once or rather like For I like, bet if I bet if I looked at the sheet music there probably would be six different lines on top of each other at some point in the sheet music yeah. so like probably yeah. we can technically check it off as a sextet in that sense but like it very much I don't feel after listening to it that I'm like, yes, I can articulate what the six different things are, and I can point to the point in the music where they all came together. The way that, like, you can do that very easily with, like, the songs that Sondheim does that with. Like, um, uh, A Weekend in the Country is a song from the musical A Little Night Music that, like very obviously is doing a thing where you've got like five different characters on stage and each of them is singing a different kind of theme and then there's a totally chaotic moment where all of them are singing at once uh but you can follow it because you've seen each character's bit happen independently and then you can hear mm. how they all interact and this right. is like telling you that that's what it's doing like, informing you with the title of the song that that's what we're about to hear, but it doesn't happen. It
3: really yeah. doesn't, because it's like, so So many musicals do this right. Like, so many people who like musicals are like, oh my god, I love that song, where people are all singing different things, and then they come together for that, like, one, like, that one word, and then that one note, and then they all go back separate again, because, um, the, uh, there is that one song uh, in West Side Story that does that and I'm forgetting the name. I had the name as I was starting the sentence, and I mm. no longer do. Uh, you can take away my musical theater person card right now. I would uh, never. I, I am, would
0: never. I, am yeah.
2: that. I, I <laughs> but do like, love that kind we, of thing as well.
3: It's just it just sounds good because yeah. it's good music. And uh we're we're gonna keep getting we're gonna get back to this as soon as we get to a different song in the section, but uh we clay and i were kind of thinking about how much of this musical this section of the musical maps to hamilton yes
1: because oh, this yes. is
3: this is moby dick's nonstop.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah no it's it absolutely is and it's trying to do that kind of like super kinetic orchestrated thing that hamilton does a lot of um and we will we will discuss it further i think it's really telling though that in the genius lyrics for sextet at the very end, when everything comes together, there's a question mark in the lyrics. Because it wasn't clear enough... <laughs> yeah, yeah, there how is. everything comes together, what was actually being said or communicated. So the genius lyrics, which clearly care deeply about this show, are just, like, throwing their hands up in the air. Yeah. It's amazing. It's That is such an indictment of the songwriting in Sextet. Oh, but... I would love for us to go through what are the pieces of the sextet, of which there's approximately six.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Six, question mark. Yeah, Yeah, I think we can do that.
2: Um. Uh, So, and I do want to, since we are the first one that we show up, is the blacksmith and the carpenter, like, sort of descending as a vocal pair on Ahab, telling him, you know, we can do all these kinds of, you know, things for you, we can make things for you, but... You can never be anything other than what you are, which is, like, their refrain. Um, so, they're they're weird. I don't know what they're doing here, because, like, it's a combination of, like, a weird Greek chorus, like, Here is Ahab's failing! We are just, you know, here to explain it to him while, you know, providing him with what he needs. We're, like, uh, you know, we're the Greek chorus in that respect. But also... <laughs> It's just after this monologue section where Ahab talks about, like, the new man he would design if he got to design a person, which is one of the weirder bits of the book.
0: Yeah, we don't have to go into too much detail about this, uh, but it's utterly bizarre that they put that speech in here. It doesn't make any, any sense. My
2: main point of interest is, first of all... Was this just a, a monologue from Ahab to the audience during the like depiction? was what was going on on stage? And secondly, what how did you understand that watching this musical? I barely understand that reading the book, but there's more books, so it's less of a problem.
0: <laughs> i're we're, we're talking to be clear about um the speech that Ahab gives before Sextet. He's talking to the blacksmith and the carpenter. It's, like, after he said he needs a new leg, I guess they're working on it or something. It's unclear. And he just starts talking about, like, I will, like, order a new man after, like, an admirable design. Uh, like, uh... Huge. He, like, no eyes. There's whole Legs thing. the size of tree trunks. He just lists a bunch of features of this imaginary giant.
2: And it it sounds like that when in, that just missed you.
4: Well, I thought he was talking about, like, well... After I kill Moby Dick, I'm going to have a lot of whalebone. We can just make me out of whalebone.
0: Yeah. I
4: have a weird idea of what I (laughs) want (laughs) to be.
0: Like, he's a god. Yeah, I mean, because the thing is, like, this passage is in the novel, and it's very weird and confusing in the novel also. Um, Because it really is just, like, Ahab talking about this, like, impossible idea of a bizarre giant human Um, that he wants built. Yeah, and it's it's Um, a comic
2: dialogue between him and the carpenter, who because the carpenter is a comic figure in the book, he's like, he can do anything with his hands, but he's actually not very, like, clever or, like, thoughtful. He's this sort of nattering uh, nattering old weirdo who can make anything, but isn't kind of an idiot, and therefore Ahab is sort of presenting this kind of bizarre idea that encodes some of his ideas in this, like, project and the carpenter is just constantly like, oh my, I I mean, I I I guess
0: Yeah, and and it I think there are like things that speech means,
2: but 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 it's one of the more opaque moments in the novel.
0: And to the extent that it means things, it rests entirely on like weird, deep thematic structures of like the sorts of things Ahab cares about and the way that Ahab thinks about like humanity and, like, God, and, like, the yeah. creation of man. Like, because he's kind of placing himself in this weird position of, like, a, a creator of man, right? But, um, but
2: specifically an Improver, he's going, like, humans are weak and easily destroyed, like my leg. We should be these massive, towering giants to live up to the intellect within us. And also, we don't need eyes. We'll just have a uh, you know illumination coming from above through a skylight. It's it's a whole weird thing, and it sounds like literally none of that was present in the musical. Because how could it be?
4: Well, I think the big thing that I want to point out here, and I'm thinking about the staging, oh. is that here and then in none of in the rest of this song, nothing felt important. Because everything was happening at the same time on this big Hamilton-ish boat stage. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying hamilton is because it was very, it's that sort of maxi-minimalistic mm-hmm. where it's grand and large and there's these very distinct points. You know, there's the crow's nest in the middle, but there's no set, so mm-hmm. to speak. You know, there's no settings. You don't have...
2: Yeah, it's not like there's a a textured stage. It's not like there's lots Mm -hmm. of different props, but it's huge, and it has a very clear geography Mm -hmm. to it, so you can have these different, like, groups occurring around the stage at Mm -hmm. the same time.
4: Yes. Cool, cool. And that's the thing. This whole song, you have these groups all over, but they were pretty... One, the song does a bad job, as I think Danny, I see Danny counting on their fingers, so <laughs> um, I've been doing the same, actually <laughs> but, so I know something's gonna come there, but the groups in this, you know, the parts of the sextet are unclear, and even in the staging, it was kind of there wasn't this sort of okay, time to shift my focus mm. and that meant both, a lot of people were stuck on stage, kind of you know, half-heartedly miming general boatness. And also... (laughs) A lot of... And also, you kind of followed over to the next thing that happened. You know, suddenly Fadala's saying it's time to baptize the harpoon in blood and it didn't feel... Parts that seemed like they were supposed to cut through never cut through because there (laughs) wasn't a... You know, there wasn't a solid enough substance to be cut.
1: Mm,
2: that makes sense. Also, I'm reminded of, you know, Hamilton is obviously the... Uh, this is Hamilton's shadow. It's, it's it's you know, dark mirror in a certain sense. Uh, <laughs> Hamilton has so much kinetic energy on stage. Like, you know, uh, I believe we've talked about criticisms of Hamilton. I believe we will talk again about criticisms of Hamilton and, like, how we understand. But one thing it is very good at is just there's a ton of physical motion on stage that's very coordinated, that's, like, leaping over each other and running through each other. And when there's events happening, all that motion coordinates around the event. So your eye is drawn just by literally the way people move on the stage to the specific person you're supposed to be paying attention to. And it's all very, like, finely-tuned choreography, even beyond the
0: music. I feel like part of what's going on there is that, like— both Hamilton and this musical are dealing with the fact that like the events that the show is about and the like texts from which it is drawn are not really about like human beings interacting with each other in a physical space that you can like easily visually represent. Like a lot of the a lot of the action in Moby Dick is descriptions of wailing scenes and of, like... And conceptual. Conceptual stuff and also, like, interactions that are physical but in a way that it's hard to put on stage. And then, like, in Hamilton, a lot of what's being talked about is, like...
2: Letters and correspondence. Yeah, political
0: debates. And so, like, you've got to represent these things visually and you're not going to do it... Like, if the subject matter of a play is people having social interactions in a drawing room, you can have, like, that... You can just put that there, <laughs> relatively simply. Uh, and if your subject material is something like this, that is more conceptual, that is more historical, Abstract. whatever, you've got to do something else. And Hamilton makes its choice about what it's going to do, and it, it is this like emotional dancing thing. And it feels like this musical just doesn't really choose anything. <laughs>
3: it really doesn't and okay i don't know if this is shifting something but i'm so glad i followed this rabbit so the song i forgot about the the west side story one that does the cool thing where everyone mm-hmm, kind of comes mm-hmm. together and then comes apart so it's tonight reprise but it's tonight parentheses quintet
1: <laughs> it is
3: that it is a tet if you will
1: <laughs> oh, and God, uh,
3: i I have no idea if this is what Dave Malloy is referencing directly with this one because it's just like it's it's adding a Tet to the Quinn, yep. you know, yep. you know what I mean. These are words that people use. Um, And a quintet, it's like, it's so easy to know what the parts are. So one part is the Jets, one part is the Sharks, one part is Anita, one part is Tony, and one part is Maria. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's that's it. That's it, baby.
0: I haven't (laughs) listened to that song in probably years, because I haven't really thought about West Side Story much in years. And I probably could have listed those parts to you. Just because I used to listen to that show a lot, and because it's really easy to remember, because it's like, wow, who are the important characters in this scene? What are the feelings that are happening? Well, there's the main two characters, there's the person who has a particular perspective on the two of them, and then there's the two big categories of people in the show. Like, I remember what the interactions are, because I remember the most basic things about the characters and the plot of West Side
2: Story. (laughs) Here's a question. Do any of the parts in Sextet interact with each other i mean assuming we can define the parts
0: i don't think they, they do all right do we want to try to define we... the parts of we should, let's, we define should parts. Be... let's define the
3: parts everyone's favorite game show <laughs> um... <laughs> okay
2: so we've got the blacksmith and carpenter are one part i think that's pretty clear they're like
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know uh they're doing ahab's bidding they're making his like leg and harpoon okay
3: so the carpenter the blacksmith I think stu- I'm gonna say Stub and Flask too because stub- they yeah. both sing kind of different verses, but then they come together for the money, 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 whatever. Yeah, I think yeah, Stub yeah. and
2: Flask are one part. Do we want to explain what these parts are no. Like about? Okay, no, cool. I want to. I just want to list. Them.
0: <laughs> I literally just <laughs> yep, want to list yep, them. Yep, okay, I feel like it will free us to move forward. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, oh, Starbucks Dad. is one of the parts. Starbucks,
3: Starbucks, Starbucks.
0: Uh, uh, Dagu and Tashtego. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, yeah, Dagoo and Tashtego are a part. Um... Are Ishmael and Queequeg a Quique. separate part
2: from Degu and Teshtego?
0: Right, so here's the thing. We've now reached a point, we're just scrolling forward in the lyrics. Yeah. We've reached a point where Degu, Teshtego, Ishmael, Queequeg, Stub, Ahab, and Fidala, and Pip, all speak in what kind of feels like it's the same, uh, like, section. All of mm. these people have things that they say, but it doesn't feel like they are all the same part. In fact, it doesn't feel like they can all be the same part because Stubb was clearly in a separately defined part earlier.
1: Mm. And also
0: because it doesn't make any kind of conceptual sense for Dagu, Teshtego, Ishmael, Kwee, Wike, Fadala, and Ahab all to be one part. So this is what I'm talking about. This is what we've been talking about where this this song doesn't do the thing that it claims that it's doing with the title Sextet.
3: And... Because this is the the thing, I would say that Ahab and Fidala's parts are definitely separate because Fidala is yeah. like, the impression I'm getting is he's kind of singing at Ahab and Ahab's too like deep in his own head yeah. to fully respond to yeah, him. I think so. And then obviously, um, whatchamacallit, uh, Kwekweg and Ishmael split off at some point when Kwekweg is talking about his fever and then we have them kind of interacting. So I consider them a separate unit mm-hmm. and that brings it up to eight. Which you might guess is not six.
2: <laughs> amazing, yeah. amazing. See, he just couldn't oh,
4: say I... octet again. When,
2: <laughs> when I was like counting them, I definitely was like, "Okay, Ishmael and Queequeg are a separate one. Fidal is a separate one. Ahab's uh, Ahab's with Fidala, I But you're right. And then there's Pip is in here, and is Pip in the Ahab parts? He's not in the Fidala apart. No, so
4: they simply just stop to talk during their big bombastic complicated musical number yeah. which you may recognize as a bad thing to do in yeah. that um
0: yeah see this is why i was I think... like ben stop explaining what the parts are <laughs> yeah. conceptually we need to just count them Yeah, yeah. No, because right. i knew if we started counting them this would we would happen. find that we couldn't
2: yeah i think one of the really majestic things about sextet, not in a good way, is the fact that it gets less and less coherent the closer you get to everything coming together supposedly. Like, <laughs> yes. it's not that you start off with these very different conversations that start coming together thematically until you hit that pivot point where everything hits the same note, because it's like, I mean, maybe the color's red and white, but it's so poorly developed that there's entire sections of this that have nothing to do with those colors. Oh, yeah. And maybe you can connect those colors to a certain (laughs) kind, like, to whale pups, like, you know, young whales, and through that to Starbucks bit. But again, it doesn't really work, and it just... It's a disaster of
4: a song. I was yelling at Danny about... (laughs) How incoherent the parallels that the music is setting up in this are. Oh God. yes. Because yes. it talks a lot about whale mothers, and like they even see some a whale mother in calves, and then we bring it. That's where the red and white is, right? Red and white is when you stab a whale mother, you have and apparently according to Genius, this is from the book. Blood except and milk. it doesn't yeah. say that, but like you have blood and milk, so you have red and white. And he obviously likes the colors red and white, maybe because this is the American hearse, and, and you then cannot, you have the blue yeah, of the sea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it get then blood and then the red and white also becomes like
0: the, the baptizing what? the harpoon. It also becomes
4: the color of Fadala, or like the color of the skin with the blood that yeah, they're it's... baptizing the harpoon in, and then the whale mother is also somehow tied in to Starbucks' children. And at the end, I, I was sitting there and I finished the song and I realized when Starbucks is like, no, no, let them go. We don't lower for pups. I paused and went, wait, I think this is Starbucks giving up on Starbucks' children? Maybe. Yeah, so, it's, like, it's, I think that's the only way it coheres. There's other,
2: there's other ways to make it cohere, <laughs> but they all involve these massive leaps in logic that just make no... F- Fucking sense.
1: So, yeah
3: And it's like I because we also threw around like, okay, is this Starbuck giving up on his children or is this Starbuck giving up on killing Ahab? Or is this just like I don't know.
4: So Who well, it, Like someone has to be the whale mother now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 so
0: I the whale <laughs> but Clay, the whale mother is America. Yeah. It, it is. is. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and, and I think there's yeah, the the whole song ends with Starbucks saying like no we won't lower for calves meaning I guess very literally we won't try to hunt like whale calves like like you know young whales yeah. um and and like there's this impl- implication in the way that he says it in the tone of his voice that it's like no we won't do that that would be wrong and so it's like okay Obviously this is meant to carry some kind of big weight, where it's like he's, he's refusing something, he's, he's making some moral choice, and it's not just obviously about the whales, it's about something else. But it's so unclear what <laughs> the calves represent, like how this interacts with the way that this musical, all of a sudden, in this part, is super concerned with children- <laughs> yeah,
2: it's really concerned with children, and also it's like he's like, ah, oh, can I do this violence that will, you know, because to uh to briefly gloss it, Starbuck has went looking for a gun, and he found one. Uh,
0: that's the actual line. That's yeah. Used. I went looking
2: for a gun, and I found one. Which you know, you knew where the guns were the whole time. Ahab pointed one at you at one point. Um, but. <laughs> He's got a gun, he's trying to decide, am I going to shoot Ahab and thus end this madness? And he decides at the end not to, so maybe won't lower for calves, like, I won't kill, I won't do a violence, or I won't lower myself in order to be able to see my child again, but the overarching result is me sort of going, is Ahab a whale calf now? Is What <laughs> yeah. is going on
4: here? Also, also the whale calves... Like they managed to, Dave Malloy has managed to make this thematic connection between, I guess, a white guy's skin and the blood coming out of it, and milk and blood in the water. Which yeah, okay, yeah, we've got we've got the same two we got the same two colors twice.
0: And there's but also like, also kind of
4: cheating because it's the same thing making it red both times. Yeah, but uh,
0: and, and there's also but, this thing where Queequeg is like guilty about it.
4: Yeah no. Oh yeah yeah. Queequeg is guilty and about killing calves which I feel like if you're going to include that you have to ex- you know do some work into what actually killing calves means but we don't know. I think I think this means Queequeg killed Ahab. Um I, oh,
1: <laughs> but it's
4: but oh I think the thing is that also it ends on that note. But the most interesting and like emphasized part of this
2: Sextet
4: is was never the calves. It kind of felt like a weird side thing yeah. to the yeah. whole harpoon bit.
2: Yeah, all the way through your The, you're the absolutely harpoon bit correct. is a lot louder. Yeah, it's... and a
4: lot more like Fidala is doing this like chant the whole time. It's very the music gets very bombastic whenever they yeah, talk about the yeah. harpoon. Yeah,
2: I yeah. know the Fidala um, sections feels like the real focus of the song, just mm-hmm. not even musically, just audibly. <laughs> yeah yeah
0: and 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 like it is one of the things that's so weird about this song is that it's taking it's taking lots of different points in the novel and and sort of smashing them all together, but I think maybe, I'm sure
2: Malloy considers it a virtuoso act of like re- realigning bits from the novel I, I disagree
0: I, like what I would say is that what it's doing in particular is that it's taking two moments that I think are, like, extremely cool and, like, big cruxes of the novel. One of which is, yeah, the forging of this harpoon and the, the, the moment when Ahab, like, Baptizes it in the in blood in the name of the devil. Like he does that in the it novel. Rules. It's it's the coolest shit in the world. Um he's he's Metal like, as hell. He he's like making an evil cursed weapon. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like some Dark Souls shit. Anyway, um <laughs> Ahab played Elden Ring. Yeah.
2: As of I. I would love an Ahab harpoon in Elden Ring. That it's would The be blasphemous cool. blade. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but so so there's that moment in the novel, which is being kind of put in this song and then there's also this moment of starbuck like holding a musket trying to decide whether or not he's going to kill ahab and like struggling with the kind of moral weight of that choice and what that would mean for himself and for his family and i love both of those moments i think they offer a lot of like good and and kind of complex like movements of character and theme uh I don't think that it makes any sense to, like, overlap them directly on top of each other. No. Um,
2: like, I mean, I can see ways you could start to do it. One would be to emphasize Starbuck as, like... The voice of reason and Christianity, because that's a thing he is in the book. Starbuck is very, like, traditionally Christian in a very New England way. He's very, like, devout, but not, like, you know, weird and zealous about it. He's presented as, like, the in many ways, the ideal New England man, and he is insufficient to the task of stopping Ahab. Yeah. And I think that... I mean, I'd say you could do a lot with that in the context of, like, a story about American uh, ideologies and, say, um, you know, the failure of a sort of moderating or, like, of a moderate tradition to actually be able to deal with the problems of American society. The thing is, we already have that. It's the 1956 uh, Moby Dick movie uh, in which um, Ahab's Madness is sort of directly associated with, like, HUAC and the House Un-American Activities Committee, like... Uh, you know McCarthyism, and Starbuck Ooh. is clearly like the you know um, reasonable person who's like, but this is you know madness. We need to stop the the you know this is total overreach. And you know there's things that can be said about that. We did in the episode where we watched that movie, but that is at least more coherent than whatever's going on here.
3: And I feel like it could even be musically coherent in that way. Like I mean, if we want to say that sort of Starbuck is kind of you know. The thing that grounds this place and that grounds the ship, he could have sort of like, oh wow, that was that was a motorcycle. Um, sorry, I don't know if you guys heard that. But, yeah, um, it's okay. I can hear it a little, he, but these he, things happen. Okay, well, he could kind of be ooh, something akin to like the baseline, just something that kind of ties everything together. And then Fidala, because he's talking about sort of like you know, you know, I die first, you die second. He could kind of be the melody, the thing kind of. Tying everything kind of over it, the main thing we follow, and then the rest of the people on the Peckwad could be the chorus, kind of harmonizing with him, and then Ahab could just do whatever the fuck he wants because he's kind of, you
2: know, Ahab, because he's, he's,
3: Ahab. he's Ahab, yeah, no, and there's uh, a- he is Ahab, yeah.
2: Oh, 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 that yeah. that motif. I miss it so much. Anyways. They have
3: the oh, the the motif that just did not come back. I'm so angry. Yeah. I'm so angry that this musical just does not have motifs. Like, yeah. I don't know if I mentioned this in version 1 of this oh, thing, we but did, like we did. I did that. I did this in the at our in our fucking podcast, I was able to create a motif for like our antagonist and use that throughout and make it thematically meaningful in the music. I did that and I am not like as Antonio I did not go winning, to music school uh, like Dave Malloy. Yes.
2: Yeah, no, it's um the lack of motifs in this musical is baffling and angers me. Um and, you know, things that could maybe have been a motif, potentially. Uh, I don't know, maybe the concept of an American hearse, which is obviously, like, a thematic through line. Like, uh, so I do want to get to the various, like, individual quote-unquote parts or things going on in this song because they are running through a bunch of things. They're often musically atrocious. Um, And Fidala's bit, I think, is a really important one because I think this is, I think this section is why Fidala's in this musical at all. Because it's obvious that Malloy is, like, not comfortable with the concept of Fidala. And he had that whole, like, Fidala monologue that's about... Fidala's barely even a character. It's like, you could have left him out. Practically every adaptation of Moby Dick leaves him out. But you kept him. And you didn't keep him in, like, a way where it's like, we're gonna talk about this in the thing. No, you had, like, a break-the-fourth-wall moment for Fidala. (laughs) And now you have him just straight-up doing the thing you are criticizing the the, uh, book for doing... Because you really wanted this bit where Fadala says, you know, Ahab, you're going to die. Here's how you're going to die: two two hearses, the first um, of no human hands made, and the second of American wood, and that's like the Mo- the Macbeth-style prophecy of how Ahab will fail. Now, first of all, in this, he does not say um, a made of no you know human hand. He says misunderstood. In order to make the rhyme work. So we lose Mm. an entire element of the Macbeth-style thing, which is, you know, no man of woman born, etc. Like the hearse of no human hand built? That's not possible. I'm invincible. It's a thing that's going on here, and it's just gone because misunderstood rhymes with wood. And then the sec, but that means that the second one's the important one from Alloy, at least lyrically. He wants to insist on the hearse of American wood, and this part is called the American hearse. And I think that there's, you know, the Pequod is America. The Pequod is going to its grave. It is a hearse. This is the overarching thematic thing that structures this musical, and at the same time, it's a concept that barely comes up at all because, unlike a real musical, this doesn't have motives either musical or lyrical
0: yeah i think that's yep. basically true
2: i'm mad
4: we could have traded pip for like some the american hearse part one american hearse part two i don't know
2: i, uh, I like yeah.
4: songs just write original songs you know yeah.
3: i think that Molloy should just start writing his own stuff or well i mean i i say this having heard hmm. some songs from ghost quartet which are his own things but they're also just not good but that's just because yeah. Malloy's not good. Yeah, yeah. But it's better than this because at least it can have themes, and at least it can have some semblance of, you know, structure, s- lyric structure. Yes.
1: Uh, yeah. yeah. So,
2: so that's what Fidal is doing here. He's overseeing the creation of the harpoon. And he's intoning the prophecy, and uh, you know, he's declaring the American Hearse thing. And that's that's basically all he's doing here.
0: Yeah, and I just, I really feel that, like, by overlaying all of these things on each other, um, like, I've mentioned the two big things that it really bothers yeah, me, because yeah. I think they're, like, things that I like a lot, but there's, there's, like, so much other stuff that's all been crammed in here, and because it's all being done at once, and it's not really, like, thematically coherent in any way that no, I can see. No, not even a little. I feel like each of these things is getting sold really short. Oh, yeah. Like, Uh, I don't think we have any sense of what it means that Queequeg is dying. Yeah. Which he is, in the song. Queequeg has his, like, fever and he's dying. Um, but that's not- We don't know what it means. We don't know what it has to do with this blood and milk thing. Um.
2: Yeah. Uh, we've also got, um, Ahab talking about three years at sea and he says- Three years at sea, my harpoon turns to rust, my limp bone turns to dust, my compass lies to me, my quadrant hides the skies from me. There's this idea of, like, Ahab being rendered, like, impotent by the lack of Moby Dick. And it's just like, why is this, why is that a thing you're expressing? Why is that here? What is that thematically? Because that's not a thing that's, like, even expressed in the novel at all. Ahab's never, like, you know, just sort of, aging out of hunting moby dick or dissolving in in waiting um, yeah like
0: i i mean i think he is sometimes like uh everything is turning against me which i think is maybe what's being yeah or he's even
2: impatient here. but like but, but he's also constantly succeeding over it like we'll we'll get to things later that touch on this as well but ahab consistently uh when he has troubles, like, when his quadrant doesn't work, he breaks it and declares he doesn't need it. When the compass is reversed, he puts it back and reorients uh, it using a magnet. Uh, when his uh, whalebone—sorry, his ivory leg—I did it right there. When his ivory leg breaks, he gets a replacement. Ahab is fully set on mastering the physical world and moving through it to destroy Moby Dick. And here, he's whining.
0: Yeah, um... I, I wanted to talk, um, I, I, I talked about this before, um, I don't want to necessarily spend too long on this because this is kind of like, oh, here's this thing from the novel that I think is cool that's not here, but like, I think it matters to the, like, the sort of lack of thematic coherence that we've mm-hmm. been talking about, the thematic movement that doesn't make sense, and particularly I think it matters to me to the way that this musical is going to and continues to, like, talk about the concept of children. Yeah. Um, Because, Mm. so, so there's this thing of of Starbuck considering killing Ahab, and Mm. his, his, in his moment of considering killing Ahab, he talks about his family. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, the 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 line as the musical quotes it is shall I shall I marry my wife Daniel my boy but a touch of the trigger and I might hold them again, and and that's pretty much like a pretty much a direct a quotation from the novel like it's been slightly rearranged but not in a way that I think changes anything all that much, mm-hmm. um, but so he's so in that line he's thinking to himself well if I kill Ahab. I'll be able to return to my family. I so, won't die. Exactly. So, like, killing Ahab, in some sense, reunites me with my son. Killing Ahab almost protects my son, protects my family. Yeah, yeah.
2: It, it, killing Ahab would be to prioritize his child, his family, um, you know, the things that he knows are good, that Ahab, despite the fact that he owes Ahab obedience uh, and, like, loyalty, Ahab is prepared to destroy with his mad quest.
0: And then, and then at the end of the song, he says, we won't lower for calves, which is the big, no, I'm not going to do it moment. And it's framed as, we won't lower for calves, so, like, we won't hurt children. But the actual decision that he's made, apparently, is, I won't kill Ahab. I won't
2: prioritize my child. Right,
0: like, it's, it's... it's backwards. Like, yeah, if yeah. you if you won't lower for calves, then you should kill Ahab, I think. And, like, for me, I think that what's happening here is that the musical does not understand the actual kind of, um... Turn? Yeah, the actual turn. The actual kind of moral movement that happens in Starbuck's speech in the novel when he's considering killing Ahab. Because, um because i think and this is a this is a thing that could be debated but my reading of that passage is that starbuck does have basically the the thought that is in the musical of like well if i kill ahab then i can go back home to my family which if i don't kill him i probably won't be able to um and then he he basically says that starbuck a touch and starbuck may survive to hug his wife and child again so okay killing ahab equals family <laughs> And then he has this little outburst where he just, he says, oh, Mary, Mary, boy, 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 where he kind of calls out to his family. And then he says, but if I wake thee not to death, old man, who can tell to what unsounded deep Starbucks body this day week may sink. So what he, he has the little outburst, which is unclear what exactly he's feeling in that moment because he's just saying names. And then he says, oh, but if I don't kill Ahab, then there will be bad consequences. So it's like, wait a minute, in this moment of emotional outburst where you're longing for your family, you actually changed your mind. You started saying, oh, but I can't kill Ahab. And then you started wrestling with the dangers of what it would mean to not kill Ahab. And my understanding of why that happens is that he he thinks, well, I have to kill Ahab to protect my family. And then he imagines what it would be like to return home as a murderer. And I think he kind of realizes that he couldn't do that, that he couldn't become a husband and father again if he knew that he had that stain on himself and so it's like he's caught in this bind where the only way he can protect his family is to do something that would make him unable to be a part of his family anymore and if he doesn't do that thing and he remains like a kind of upstanding father and husband then he might die and that would mean again that he would not be able to be a part of his family and so it's like no matter what starbuck does family's lost to him in this moment and that's totally not present here because he doesn't understand the idea of like why family is at risk in both directions for him or like what he's actually wrestling over. It just smooths it all over into this. We won't lower for calves thing. That is so vague that you don't need to understand that Starbuck is grappling with what it would mean to be a murderer. Yeah. It almost feels like this should have been a song for, for Starbuck. Yeah.
3: Like this is the entire topic of like a dramatic moment.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. It's also really notable that, You know, we talked about this in previous episodes as well, that Starbuck here has been cast in the role of, like, uh, you know, a woman with a violent or or cruel husband who's trying to decide whether or not to kill her husband. Like, he has been cast as, like, you know, literally he's got a torch song about Ahab, and now, you know, I went looking for a gun and now I've found one, and, you know, he would have killed me, surely that means I can kill him, but, oh, he's my captain— That dynamic is very, very present here.
0: Yes. Um, And 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 that's
2: the dynamic we get rather than Starbuck grappling with the fact that in order to preserve, like, the rightful order he personally is dedicated to of family, of, like, propriety, he would have to go completely outside of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And... uh... I also think that the genderedness of this plays mm-hmm. into stuff about, like, children and family, where... I we'll d- see more of that soon. Yeah, well, you can talk about that more, I think, with the Rachel's, where it really comes out, but there's there's something, like, very strange going on with the way this musical thinks about motherhood, also.
2: It's amazing that this musical managed to think about motherhood at all when it's about Moby Dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, that's an achievement, not one I support. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no,
3: M- Moby Dick is everything, if you need a metaphor. Moby Dick is America, it's people, it's my mom, it's everyone. <laughs> it's whiteness. Moby Dick is my mom. That's yeah. a that trailer fair, for this whi- series.
2: Moby Dick is whiteness would be a very strong theme if you, say, included the chapter called The Whiteness of the Whale, which is all about whiteness and the concept of whiteness and what Moby Dick is in relation to that at all. But Malloy didn't, because he thinks that's one of the boring chapters. I'm just.
1: Mm.
4: Imagining Malloy, like, calling up, like, a female friend. Just being like, I figured out how to make Moby Dick pass the Bechdel test.
1: <laughs> oh! No! I'm dying. I'm dying. <laughs> Why oh, would you say that? <laughs> oh,
2: okay. Um, Other things that happen in sex debt. There's the stubborn flask bit, which is flat as hell.
4: It's them doing their funny little comedy routine, except... We're not in the comedy, we're not in their portion, which was the comedy portion of the musical anymore.
2: Yeah, also, it has the lyrics: uh, film money, 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 fill my bank, fill my belly, bigger, 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 kill, kill, kill.
4: That—that <laughs> That is what I say, um, on payday, however. <laughs>
2: <laughs> when, when, it, when it hits,
4: yeah. I go, money, 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 fill my bank, fill my belly. Yeah, it gets and then I start talking about killing, it's weird. Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah, I've witnessed it firsthand, it's very strange. <laughs>
2: It is one of the catchier bits of this song, though. Not in a good way. Funny how that works. (laughs) But it is one of the catchier bits of the song. Uh, yeah, it's... It's really weird, because there's this bit about, like, it's a round thing made of gold, shiny doubloon, my soul's been sold, says Flask. And, like, here's the thing. First of all, Flask doesn't have a soul. That's, like, a major part of (laughs) Flask's character in the book. That Flask is just completely unconcerned. Flask is just here to make the money. Flask, like... There's a bit in the book where um, Flask, like, qual- calculates the, mu- the number of cigars he'd be able to buy with that doubloon and gets the number wrong. If you check yes! his head, Flask is like, Flask looks at this doubloon, which in this context is just money. It's just a doubloon. I don't think we've had a song about the doubloon. Whereas in the book, there's an entire chapter of all the different, like, officers and various figures on the ship going up to the doubloon. And analyzing it and being like, here's the symbols on it. Here's this golden thing that is at the center. Literally, it's nailed to the mast. It's at the center of our little world. Ahab sees things in it. He sees his own mind and his own struggles reflected. He sees all things as reflecting his, you know, his mind and spirit. Uh, Starbuck goes and sees, like, you know, parables and biblical meaning. Uh, Stubb goes and he sees, like, meaningless symbols and jokes around about astrology. And then Flask goes up and he calculates how much money it's worth. Like, Flask is supposed to be, like, totally focused on cash and practicality in a way that deadens. And so, in some ways, this little song is correct to Flask's character. Money, 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 fill my bank, fill my belly. But also... Because we haven't had the section on the doubloon, the bit where he talks about the shiny round thing in the doubloon is just nothing.
4: He sounds like a leprechaun. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Also
3: just hearing sort of that phrase repeated, I am a little bit baffled that he rhymed money with belly when money rhymes a little bit closer to tummy.
2: (laughs) Also true. (laughs)
3: so i'm just a little bewildered because that's where my instinct goes when i'm thinking about that line i yeah. forgot it was belly and not tummy uh,
2: yeah and this this is also another wild thing which is like they're like we want to make money shall we lower for calves because it'll be oil it'll be money mr starbuck and then starbuck's response is no lowering for calves would be a violence against like some natural order and it's like um no this is literally our job sir we're, we're here to make money. Like the,
0: It's very easy for me to imagine Starbuck in the novel saying uh, we won't lower for calves, but the logic would be like, there's very little oil in them. I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, or even <laughs>
2: like, there's little oil for the amount of cruelty that would involve, and I am a good moral man, and therefore consider it, you know, we will not lower ourselves to lower for calves. And like, I think that may even be an opinion he expresses at some point in the novel, but in like an offhand way, it's not a major thing, because he sees whales as animals with very little moral import. He, in fact, he sees them with no moral import, such that he cannot believe someone could have revenge on one, for example.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um...
2: God. Is there anything else in sextet before we can finally, finally leave it? Uh, there's... I mean, Pip shows up. There's some Pip lines. They're mostly spoken. It's... It's Pip. Uh It's, uh... Um... You know, there's the harpoon, it gets forged, there's a lot of, like, cool sounds that would be better in a different song, um, there's, there's one of the most blank statements of theme you could possibly have, when Starbuck says, all the men, they stand away from me, no god, no one sees, their eyes are glazed with lies of fortune and obedience, and here's the thing, what do you mean by lies of obedience, Starbuck? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like yeah like hi sir what the fuck does that mean <laughs> yeah sir do you mean that they are lying about being obedient or they're being lied by being told they're being obedient or lied to or is like ahab pretending they're obeying someone when they're not because none of these are like applicable the only thing i can think of is the idea that their eyes are glazed by lies of fortune end context and obedience separate clause from lies of fortune but i don't think that works either because like first of all you'd swap the order that you put it in since this isn't from Moby Dick you can do that you can change the word order and also lies of fortune isn't true there is a fortune there's a doubloon it's right there it's just straightforward fortune they're offered fortune and they've been told to obey as according to the rules there's no lies here
0: it's also really funny to have Starbuck be oh, like... Yeah,
2: opposed... lies of obedience well, oh, wealth.
0: Yeah, exactly. Opposed to the idea that people are going to hunt whales for money when in fact, like...
2: That's a major part of his personality. Yeah, his
0: his mm-hmm. argument against Ahab is we're not here to kill whales for uh, Revenge. vengeance. We're here to kill whales for money. That's our job. Like, that's, that's the... Getting money is the thing he cares about in yes. the novel.
2: It's just that he cares about money for good Protestant work ethic reasons, rather than Flask, who cares about it for buying cigars reasons.
0: But even so, like, Flask's, like, kind of selfishness around money is never really presented as being in conflict. With oh, Starbucks. no, not
2: even a little. The- conflict is the, like, presented as, like, noble and heroic version of what Flask is doing as well, and Stubb is somewhere weirdly in the middle. Like, the mates are all of the same New England style. That's a thing in the book. Ah. <sighs> ah. <sighs> I... Is that it? Is that everything except for- Oh yeah, I guess Tashtego and Dagoo have a whole thing about Behold a miracle, under the waves in the darkness, a pod of whale mothers nursing their young. So, once again, Tashtego and Dagoo get used as the, like, we appreciate nature. Our job is to kill whales to render into oil, and we sold our skills as being very good at that. But we appreciate nature, and we're at one with it, and this is mildly racist. At least. Woo! (sighs) So- is, is that the end of the Tet Offensive? Shut up. <laughs> Shut up.
4: I considered making that joke like, an, like half an hour ago. And I went, no, I'm not going to make that I joke. I thought of it
2: half an hour ago, and I've been holding on to it and until <laughs> the perfect moment. <laughs> and uh, anyways, I, I think we can move on.
3: Yeah. Peckwood beats the Rachel.
0: Yeah, so this, yeah. Is, this is a pretty straightforward... Uh, framing of the actual like scene in the
2: yeah there's a little bit of a change that i think is bad but is relatively minor one thing i want to mention is that this song just flows directly out of sextet like there's barely a break i would not have known they were separate songs if i hadn't had like a a, a list of the tracks
3: that's which one th- of the things that oh sorry, sorry. no go on I know that's one of the things that made this musical very difficult to sit through because like, Mm -hmm. like, obviously, there are musicals that are sung all the way through, but they have some cohesion. So you kind of feel the lulls like, okay, one song is ending and it's bleeding into the next song. So you feel kind of the rhythm of one song to the next. This one just treats everything as the same song. So listening to it just felt like, you know, eternal.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that yeah, that tracks with my experience of it. And I only had to listen to it on, like, a file rather than sit in a theater, so I can only imagine how interminable it was then.
4: Especially in this fourth act or whatever part, Mm -hmm. where, again, all of the talking, which we get into a lot more talking in this part, all of the talking makes it so that there's no forward momentum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mus- musically, you know? It's, yeah. As soon as someone starts talking, you kind of have to just start listening to talking, and I'm going to say, the second time listening, the third time listening to this part, I decided I don't like Ahab's after anymore.
2: Yeah. Wow, that's that's sad. We uh, He was one of the bright spots, and now... He was one of the... Yeah.
4: By the end, both... I don't blame him too much. He's saddled with terrible lines because it turns out that, you know, speak it, saying hast seen the white whale um is awkward. Unless especially when not everyone else is saying it. Yeah, I think And sometimes he was just singing. Yeah. But at no point did his his performance always felt just a little bit on the side of like an SNL skit where someone is pretending to be Shakespearean.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. yeah. I I will blame the direction there mostly mm-hmm. because if I can lay something at Malloy's feet by any stretch yeah. of the imagination, I will.
0: Well, to be fair, he didn't direct this show. No, not but... direct, but like... <laughs> yeah, like, I,
3: I think sometimes... <laughs> other like, people were involved. Other people, like uh, Rachel Chavkin, you know, who won, or she was nominated for... Or did she win the music? Uh, just sh- there was a Tony for Best Directed Musical, and I believe she either won or was nominated. And uh, a lot of the uh, one of the big reasons why people were so upset that uh, Great Comet didn't win, uh, like as much at the Tonys that year, was because Rachel Chavkin just supposedly did a really really good job directing mm-hmm. it, and she also directed this one. And Ouch. I the, the the biggest thing about this about the Moby Dick musical is that I feel like it had no direction.
4: <laughs> Rachel Chavkin. Was nominated for both Pierre Natasha Pierre, the Great Comet of eighteen twelve, and another one for which she won. You know what she won it for? What? The other one she was nominated for, Hades Town. <laughs>
0: oh,
2: right. <laughs> Sorry that that blew out the mic. Yeah. I okay. Just, but so I, I, she is
0: good. She is good. It. She <laughs> is good. This was just. I, oh been, my god. This whole it's time, like when I realized that Rachel Shavkin uh, directed this show, I've been thinking like. God damn! Like, was Hades Town a <laughs> fluke? it's so because, good. Right, so we mentioned this on, I think, the previous Lost recording. Yeah, yeah. Is that like Ben and I are crazy. both very into Hades Town? It's good. And we got Clay's
3: wearing a Hades Town shirt. Aww, I need
0: this to be known. Aww. And, uh, we got to see the off Broadway production. Um, at at the New York Theater Workshop, which was directed by Rachel Shavkin, and...
2: It was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic.
0: Yeah, and, uh, it's like, what happened between (laughs) then and this? And, you know, um, I, like...
2: (laughs) Maybe she just phoned it in. Maybe she just saw what this was and went, well...
0: Yeah, I, I don't know, but it's...
2: I feel like the direction Ahab clearly got was we want you to be, like, over-the-top Ahab. Like like you said, almost a parody mm. of Shakespearean behavior because we need it to contrast with all of the vibrantly, like, modern performances that are going on with practically every other character over this whole wide variety of flavors. Ahab must be forever Ahab. He must be the standard Ahab of Moby Dick. Both for the thing with trump but also just to make this sort of wild adaptation work that they have this very classical A and i can see that working mm-hmm. if the rest of the show lived up to that and like actually made me think that there was a reason for this show to exist <laughs> like it's really frustrating because i don't want to be Going to a show which is like, oh yeah, everything but Ahab has been reinterpreted, modernized, made more diverse, made, you know, more explicitly other than in 19th century, you know, great American novel by a white guy. And then the part of it that I'm like, this is the least bad part is the most standard Melville-style Ahab in the middle of it. But it is really the case that Malloy's innovations mostly made it worse. Yeah. It sucks.
4: And I'm going to blame the writing a lot because I'm scrolling down a bit. I'm scrolling Mm -hmm. down um, because most of this is just, you know, straight from the book, a conversation about, you know, with the Rachel, the captain of the Rachel, Captain Gardner saying, hey, help us look for the child. Um, And I started laughing out loud when the actor sung... If we sail some four miles apart on these parallel lines, yes, we'll sweep yes. a double horizon, Captain Ahab, which is one of the worst lines you could possibly... Like, it just yeah. sounds terrible. It's so like you
0: need to describe the details of this geometric movement so we understand how two <laughs> ships can reasonably sweep an area of ocean in music.
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that line is such a bizarre decision. It's like, you can't even just say, like the phrase, we'll sweep a double horizon... That's good. I'll bet you could make a great musical line of that. But the phrase, if we sail some four miles apart on parallel lines, it's just like, uh, and then we will make a right angle turn, and then we'll continue this way. According to your sextant, you should be at this angle to the sun. Then we'll sweep back. What
0: if a song in a musical was about parallel parking? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) That's what this
2: is. Yeah, no, and it's... It's really undermining one of the most like straightforward emotional gut punches of the book, and I theoretically of this musical, you know, which implies there are straightforward emotional gut punches in this musical, which it's fighting against.
3: Um, like I will say, this section kind is one of the few moments where you kind of breathe
2: mm, in this act,
3: like because yeah. everything did slow down and we got to see you know uh, the actor uh, who plays all of the other ships. Mm-hmm. and compared to everything else this is the part that did feel more affecting because yeah. sort of just the the repetition of the my boy that in a way that's actually sung
2: yeah it yeah. was like
3: okay so this is this is an emotional moment that i can kind of like you know actually feel for
2: yeah and to clarify for our audience and to make sure we're all on the same page the uh, events of the rachel in the novel are that uh the Pequod, the ship we're all on, runs into the Rachel, where whose Captain Gardner uh, hails the ship frantically, brings Ahab aboard. Ahab knows Captain Gardner. Gardner basically throws himself at Ahab's foot and says, um, "Look, I desperately need to charter the uh, Pequod to help me sail." We've seen, you know, we've seen Moby Dick. Ahab, holy shit, you've seen Moby Dick. Okay, but that's not important. We've seen Moby Dick, and in the chase, one of our whaleboats was lost, and that whale boat we're searching for we desperately need your help because with two of us we can search more of the ocean and you don't need to describe the parallel lines to communicate the very straightforward good thing Ahab could do take 48 hours to help look for lost people and Ahab says where's the white whale I'm not going to help you I'm going to hunt the white whale and Gardner says My son is on that whale boat. And that's where you get this, like, you know, my boy stretched out and sung really powerfully as, like, you know, this moment of, no, you don't understand. This is why it matters. And Ahab still goes, okay, that's very sad, but your boy is already dead. It's Moby Dick's fault, and I'm going to go avenge him by avenging myself by killing Moby Dick. And obviously everyone's kind of shocked at Ahab's callousness. Even Ahab is shocked at Ahab's callousness. And he, you know, and the Pequod does not help the Rachel, and that's that's the story of the Rachel. It's again, it's an emotional gut punch. It's this moment where even if you've been sympathetic to Ahab's moods and anger and revenge and his thoughts about the world, this is him showing how inhumane this has made him to the point that even he is like, you know, um, I, I, you know, I hope you will forgive me as I, I do not forgive myself. Um, and I understand that you probably will not forgive me, but I must hunt the white whale. And this does an okay job of communicating that,
0: I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I it. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, I just wanted to mention that um something that I think is like really weird about mm-hmm. this um and uh, like you mentioned that the person who's like speaking as the captain of the Rachel is the same like actor who's been playing like the captains of every ship. Um, and that actor is a woman, which is, like, not weird, like, for the show, I guess, but at least in this scene, and we know this because of a photo that's on Genius.
2: And I believe in the previous discussion we established this was true of of other scenes as well.
0: She's dressed in, like, a 19th century woman's dress, and she, like, it's clear that what's going on here is not just a representation of the captain of the Rachel, but kind of, Mm -hmm. like, the Rachel as a ship. As a ship that's, like, named after a woman, and named after a woman who, like, in in the Bible, like, is a mother and, like, mourns for children. And, like, that's kind but, of the... And the that's novel, the thing the
2: novel's doing. Yeah, yeah, the novel
0: is calling the ship the Rachel because of its thematic role in, like, weeping for lost children. But, like, the, the, the show insists on fully feminizing that mourning... And it almost feels to me like the show does not really understand or, like, accept that fathers can also care about their children. Yeah, it's definitely the case that
2: whenever the show needs a register for describing, like, caring about children, thinking of them, being drawn back to them, it's not really depicting it in the language of Fatherhood, Which is, you know, very weird when Starbuck is the main person who cares a lot about children. In fact, there are no women in Moby Dick, practically. So whenever care about children is mentioned, it's, generally speaking, men who are its fathers, who are feeling absent because they're off wailing.
3: Yeah, and like, I, I do want to talk about the casting decisions here because sort of the two characters mm-hmm. who care most about families and children are played by sort of like black actors. Uh well, we know that Starbucks actor is um what did they use they them pronouns. They use but all pronouns. Dave Malloy Okay. Well Dave Malloy uses them as like, you know, as a black woman. Yeah, we discussed that, that in
2: like the third episode. So viewers should be should yeah. understand our crit- criticism here for you to build on. Go for
3: it. Yeah. And like the actor who also plays all of the ships is also, I mean, as far as I know, a black woman. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it, it, it happens again. It's just, like, the fact that there's three black actors in this, one of them is Fidala, and the other ones are used in very specific roles. It's like, that just, that doesn't feel like an accident. Like, I, it's very hard for me to kind of look at it and like, well, look, what a what a funky coincidence. Yeah. It, it feels purposeful.
2: Yeah. Also Dagoo.
3: Also Dagoo. Oh, Dagoo too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and okay. Th- who is treated as, you know, ooh, magical person of color, who loves nature.
2: <laughs> yeah, the... The wholesale replacement of the original uh, stereotypes for Dagoo and Tashdago with uh, more recent and somewhat more woke stereotypes is, um, it's a decision. It is certainly a decision. <laughs> I feel like the, the, the image I really get for this is, you know, from old and de- certainly dated uh, um, comedy community. Uh, where there's a sequence where the Dean, in his effort to not be racist, has started—has been paying such close attention to, like, the palette of possible brown tones and which celebrities they align with in order to decide for the color for the Greendale mascot, the human being, that he starts ordering his coffee and, like, I'd like a Kanye West— because it's just completely soaked into his head. And this feels like the kind of, like, we're trying so hard to have diverse casting that Dave Molloy is wrapped all the way back around to this is starting to feel very weird.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. 100%.
0: Yeah. <sighs> yeah.
3: Um... And is this the part with that really awkward line about Ahab that I told you, Clay, that made me weirdly uncomfortable?
4: No, oh, no, the one... It, that's the one before. Oh, never mind. The line with, um... The one with the line... With Pip, where Pip's like, "I'll be your leg," and
3: oh yeah,
2: yeah,
0: That's a- and Pip is
2: yeah.
3: Oh yeah, Pip too. I forgot about Pip. I can't believe it. It just uh, <laughs> we don't want to remember. it's so bad. I, I don't want to remember any characters. As, like I remember that they exist as soon as I see their name on Genius. So it's like it's I. It's a little bit willer like it's. I feel like Dave Malloy was very emphatic when he used the line sort of like, "I feel more comfortable holding your black hand than the hand of an emperor," something like that, and that just feels like, the words of a white person who's trying to be very, 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 very woke
1: in a way that's just, like,
3: patronizing and weird. And it's just, like, I don't want you to say that in this musical, Dave Molloy, because I know you mean it, and that just makes me feel strange.
2: uh, It is a quotation from the book, but the context of the book is somewhat different.
0: I mean, what I would say broadly is just that the way that Pip and Ahab relate in the novel is, like, heavily racialized in a way that's, like, quite upsetting, because... Like, literally, you know, Pip tells Ahab, like, he calls Ahab master, he tells him to treat him as an object, and it is, like, I don't think it is something that I would feel comfortable including in, like, a modern adaptation. Yeah. At the very least, I wouldn't feel comfortable including it just dropped in the middle of a song. Yeah. Like, if I... If I was making an adaptation of Moby Dick and I decided to include Pip and, and make I deci- Pip a
2: major component. Yeah, and
0: I decided to include Pip's relationship with Ahab, I would show in some way that that relationship is like deeply upsetting and that there's something weirdly coercive in it and that Ahab is treating Pip in a way that like has parallels with the ways that white men treat black boys in America. Like, I'd say something about that, but it just puts it in here, and it has Pip say these weird, servile things with zero contextualization or irony.
2: It's trying to... It's trying to go, look, actually, Pip is this huge part of the novel and very important. Actually, the thing going on with Pip is super interesting and exciting and special, and, you know, that is why part three, Pip, is totally, like, cool and good, and in a lot of ways, I think that it's managing to therefore miss the actual interesting things that are certainly embedded in a racialized context. You can't remove them from that entirely and just say, oh, no, no, Ahab and Pip's relationship is great. Obviously, that's not possible. But you can say, Ahab and Pip's relationship is like groping towards a kind of humanism, and Ahab's sort of expression of, you know, anger at God is expressed in part by a love of humanity. Like, he expressly says, look, here's Pip, who's, like, his mind is gone, he's theoretically, like, the least impressive or interesting or cool or good person on this boat, which is obviously drawing on certain racial ideas and also on, you know, ideas about mental illness and, and, you know, the worth of a person, and say, yet still, everything that is important and good in humanity is found in him. He is still kind, he is still good, You who would say that, like, the gods, or, you know, the divine is the... I think he says the gods because he's using it in that Shakespearean rhetorical way, that the gods are the source of all good and man all ill. Look here. And he's using Pip as an example of the goodness of humanity. And while that's not without its problems, it's so much better than whatever is going on in this musical with Pip. Because it's not trying to see Pip as a representative of humanity. It's purely about how weird and specific Pip is. It's... It's not good. Um, anyways. The Rachel. The Rachel. Oh, God, the Rachel. And I do think that this... You know, the sequence, again, could have a lot of emotional stuff. It does have a Pip section, uh, which is probably worth bringing up, um, which is, in this version of the song, Pip, like jumps up to say oh is another lost like pip captain it's like pip's guilting ahab over his actions and ahab threatens to murder him for it completely changing the context of that line because uh when ahab says you know cursed child weep so and i will murder thee have a care for ahab is mad his actual reasoning for that is because pip is crying about Ahab's injury and Ahab's misery in the book, and Ahab is saying, if you, if you weep like that, you might humanize me enough that I won't be able to go through with my vengeance, and my vengeance cannot be allowed to stop. I'm mad. I cannot be... I cannot let you touch me with human emotion to that extent. I will murder thee rather than be deprived of my vengeance. That's such a different thing than just, oh, you're crying because I'm doing something obviously evil? I'll kill you for it.
3: Why change that context? I
2: because Pip has I to mean, be the I, moral I, we, center.
3: It has, it's, yeah, and it's like I—I I know we're, we keep saying this over and over again, and the listeners are going to be like, "I mean, we know this," but just why does he recontextualize all of these lines that are just so much better, you know, in the place they were oh. designed to be in?
4: It's like this kind of like worship and pedestaling of the literal word-for-word text without any sort of care for the, you know, layers of meaning under it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the feel, it feels like, you know, given the opportunity Malloy would write a musical using the word, using, you know, the exact using only the words in his favorite book, but put into a totally new order and call that homage. I have
0: some yeah, like, it's it's. I have some. Really it's like that poet. Oh, I have sorry, some really great news for Dave Malloy. Which is that, uh, I think basically every word in the English language has already been used by, like, a great 19th century writer. So if he just were to write his own songs, technically speaking, every word would be Melville's.
2: He can just show a, like, um, like, he's got the cut and pasted entire text of his, like, script. He can Xerox it so everyone can see that he only used words that were in Moby Dick. And it can just be some, uh, some, like, coffee shop AU fan fiction.
3: God. I I feel like it, a lot of what Dave Malloy does, it's like that, like cut out, like you know how in all those movies when a serial killer yes, wants to threaten yes. someone but not reveal their handwriting, and <laughs> they just cut out words from magazines. It's like that, but it's you know maybe phrases instead of words. But yeah. that's just what he does. I I I feel like this musical could be equally representative, just and just like a big roll of paper where he just like you know has all of those cut out versions, like. Phrases from Moby Dick in different fonts and different colors, perhaps, for entertainment value. (laughs) And that's what this is.
2: Uh, And and then obviously set it to some kind of music because he does that. Um, I don't think it would necessarily make the music better, but I would find that a far more interesting project than an adaptation of Moby Dick that constantly makes me angry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, um...
3: Uh, Oh, one last thing about this song, I guess, is just the the fact that I completely forgot that Ahab has a son, or Ahab has a kid, and I was like, oh, whoa? Um, (laughs) it (laughs) it, It was just, I completely forgot this, like, this is... This is the third time I've, like, listened to this, and I completely forgot about this one fact, because it doesn't feel like the meaningful reveal of, like, oh, wait, this is an important thing we should have known about a person, and it's meaningful. The fact that we don't know about it until now is meaningful. This just feels like, oh, whoops, I forgot to mention that Ahab has a family, and let's just throw it in right here briefly, just so the audience knows, and then we'll never get back to it ever again.
2: Yeah, it does come up briefly in... uh in the spoken section that's coming up which um great great job uh but yeah it doesn't really amount to a lot because i think in a lot of ways this musical does not have the same orientation towards the whalers families that the book does the book is like these exist they're obviously really important they're like the gravitational locus of returning to shore but also they're really distant you're not in their social context right now there's this sense of Distance, whereas I really feel like in the musical, there's just a sense of absence. And again, we only get characters who are being feminized by the presentation and narrative who actually express care for their children in any meaningful way. (sighs) Mm. But we don't lower for calves.
3: But we don't lower for calves.
2: Uh, Oh, there's also one last thing, and then I'm happy to move on from the Rachel, uh, is that Ahab just straight up lies for no reason in this song.
0: What does he say?
2: He says, when he's told no harpoon has yet been forged that will ever kill Moby Dick, he says, not yet forged, tempered in blood and lightning are these barbs. And the thing is, that's a line from the book, because in the book, Ahab, his harpoon gets struck by lightning and, like, glows with St. Elmo's fire. There's a whole thing in a storm that's really cool and would have been a... Amazing fucking musical number. Bring in some electric guitars. I would I would <gasps> die for it. But this doesn't happen in the musical, even a little. So Ahab is just claiming that these were forged in lightning in a way that has no relationship to reality whatsoever.
0: Yeah, there yeah. was no
3: lightning in this show, it's so true. <laughs> I and like I, I just love how when we were talking about the song where the the harpoon is forged, that was one of the least interesting parts about it. Like, it's just like, yeah, and the harpoon is forged, and then, yeah, whatever.
2: Yeah, yeah. Because that's how it feels. (sighs) Yeah, and again, this would have been a whole other sequence. You'd have to understand what Fadala's role is. And, you know, we discussed this in a previous episode, so I I don't feel the need to go into it. But Fadala's position in that sequence, in that scene, is a huge part of defining his actual relationship with Ahab as a character. And, you know, it is weird. There's Orientalist elements in Fadala, like, up to the hilt. But it is a lot more interesting and developed than Fidal is here to dispense some cryptic wisdom and prophecies. End of sentence. So, you know, you could have had the song and it could have done something, but I don't think Dave Malloy would have done it well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, are, are we about ready to move to the symphony?
2: I'm about ready yeah. to move to the symphony.
1: So this is categorized
0: as a song, but I do not actually think there's any singing in this. Yeah. <laughs> or like says, maybe a little uh, tiny bit. Uh, is
3: this part categorized as a song? Wait, I have my, my, uh, what's it called? The thing that the program, program, I have the show program. I want to see if this classifies as a song. Okay, it's, it, it's, I, I just know that on the,
1: There's on There's four lines
2: sung by Ishmael in the middle of everything else spoken by Starbuck and Ahab. So, I guess that qualifies it as a song?
4: Yeah, it's, I mean, the thing is as much as this one is a severe example of literally just two characters talking to each other
2: reading the book
4: with like reading like two characters reading the book out loud to each other it at least like even though it's more more severe it do- it didn't stand out when i was listening to it cuz like oh, okay we're reading the book again like it's not time to go
2: breaking up a song at least yeah it's not yeah, at least it's not breaking up a song. any kind of rhythm The show has come to a relatively reasonable stop at the end of Rachel. You then have this spoken interlude. And if we had, like, a uh, theatrical language, as as Clay, you know, suggests this idea of, like, you know, there's the the language of when do you sing, when do you speak, how does that work, and this show just doesn't have one. If you had one that, like, where everything's been sung through, there's been very little spoken stuff, and then there's Ahab speaking with Starbuck here— maybe that could have worked quite well i don't know but as it is you've got all these little bits of speaking so now you've got this speaking it's just like um so is this like the giant man monologue is this like the little bits with pip is this something more or different uh why why is there still no singing
3: this this yeah. uh, i have the program open in front of me this this counts as a song the symphony is on here mm-hmm. it just says
2: like sung by like the company.
4: Which is which is cheating because it's, cheating. it's also not sung by the company. No, it's
2: only sung by Ishmael. Ishmael is the only person who sings in this song, and most of the words are Starbuck and Ahab.
3: It's so I, I'm weird. I'm just upset.
2: Yeah, it's... Look, it's a good section of the book, so you know, uh, read the book. It's enjoyable. Um, there's versions of this that show up in some of the movies, I think. Uh, it's... This, as just an audio clip, would be a perfectly fine bit of Moby Dick reading. And then for some reason, Ishmael sings some narration lines. They do, however, also drop some of the best lines from this monologue in a way that heaps me, it torments me, it maddens me. I I must destroy it. Uh, they drop a bit where um, Ahab drips a single tear into the water and the narration says that not all the treasure sunk in the vast Pacific compared to the treasure of that single drop. And that's just... its a, I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly because I don't remember it precisely, but it's a good line. And it communicates the idea that Ahab has softer emotions, internality. This is him having this moment of deep longing for things that he's never had and never will have, a life on shore, um, you know, a relationship with his wife, given that he describes how, you know, my wife, huh, my widow, while her husband still lives, is such a good line as well. There's all this good stuff here, but because Ahab is Trump, because Ahab is this, like, bombastic enemy, this, like, the thing dragging everything down only, and not also this deeply sensitive and imperial soul, this, like, vast you know, emotional core of the novel. This is an attempt to give him that pathos. Late in the day, and by just reading the book.
4: And this is where we get the, is Ahab, Ahab, is Ahab, Ahab, except it's not sung. It's not the motif! Why would we sing the thing that Early on, stuck in there, and you're like, "Well, this is gonna have to come back."
2: Context, oh,
4: you know, it would at least, you know, it would at least be something of a balm to go, "Oh, that was there for a reason."
2: Yeah, no, you're you're right. I've if that motif had returned for this, that would have been great. And like, there's even lines here that not going to say would make great lyrics because we've seen the effort to do that in malloy's work generally in this musical but they would at least be better lyrics than some of the ones we have got and then uh, there's also a line that gets uh dropped here which is um just a really important line it was in ahab's last little uh monologue here where he says what is it? What nameless, inscrutable, unearthly thing is it? What cruel, hidden emperor commands me that against all natural lovings and longings I so keep pushing myself on all the time, recklessly doing what in my own proper, natural heart I do not dare? Is Ahab Ahab? And then, inst- and then, is it I, God, or who that lifts this arm? And first of all, the way he says it, he says it like, is it I, God, or who? Not, is it I, God, or who? Like, those are the three options, which I think is the obvious reading, personally. But the thing that he also says is he talks about how everything is driven by God. God does all the moving in the universe. How can you blame me? He says, who's to doom when the judge himself is dragged to the bar? You know, who is, you know, who could be damned when God set them up to be damned? There's this, like, real criticism of God, this real challenge that Starbuck is unable to, like, follow him into in this sequence. And it's just missing here, especially given this idea was raised very early in the musical of like, we're all going to lay our grievances before God all together. And here's where the grievances against God are actually expressed by Ahab, who explicitly is the one in the book bringing them together to lay those grievances. So, you know, I... we can just remove that. It's fine.
3: <laughs> also, just. Like you said like there's lines here that could work as music. Like yeah. there's specifically like a what nameless inscrutable and earthly thing is it could be like that that always kind of feels like it's in a rhythm. I a part of me kind of wants to challenge myself to just take this song and make it an Ahab song and like just write oh. a good one. I don't know if I will, so don't pro- I'm not promising anything I mean, but it'll have motifs, it's not hard. So it would be, be a real as...
2: musical song.
3: Yeah, I mean Wild that I mean, it that's what's the most disappointing thing here. I feel like this was it is possible to make a good coherent Moby Dick musical, and it we have talked extensively about the ways that that can be done and the way it can be staged and musically composed. Yep, yep. But none of that is present here because there was just no thought put into this. Dave Molloy just thinks he can take words put them to music and assume it sounds good. And I just, I'm, I guess I'm upset. Like maybe the world is like, you know, well, this is the Moby Dick musical. It didn't work. Let's never do that again. Cause <sighs> I think it's possible. I think if, if people who actually understand the themes of Moby Dick and care about the text, like if.
2: And aren't Dave do... Malloy. I honestly think and that aren't might Dave be Malloy. the Malloy?
3: And aren't Dave Malloy. Yeah. Cause he's just not good at this. And I think. There's, it's such a thematically rich book. Like, you could focus on one theme in Moby Dick and just make a musical about that one theme. Yeah. And it would be really good.
0: Yeah. But no. I honestly do think that, like, one of the things that keeps coming up is that Ben and I are just continually talking about stuff that was in the book that isn't in the musical. And I I think that, like, if you were to actually try to make a musical that includes all the stuff that Ben and I see as, like, obviously missing, it would be, like, intolerable. It'd be, like, 24 hours long. Um,
2: Yes, lock people in the theater for 24 hours of Moby Dick musical.
0: Because, unfortunately... Give them whale
2: meat to eat.
0: Unfortunately, Moby Dick is a huge and complicated musical with a lot... Book. Huge and complicated book. This is a huge and complicated musical, but... um, Huge and complicated book with a lot of different thematic threads that interact in complex and messy ways. Yeah. And basically, I guess what I'm saying is I think if one wanted to adapt Moby Dick into like a coherent musical, one really would have to pick and choose in a in a in a in a really precise way. You know? Yeah. So maybe you could be like, okay, I want to tell like maybe you do say, I want to tell the story of Pip. But then like you're going to have to really focus in and figure out, okay, which bits of the novel, not just literally in terms of mentioning Pip, but which bits of the novel are setting up the thematic things that happen in these important Pip chapters? Yeah. Like, where do the ideas that happen in the Pip chapters happen in other places in the mm-hmm, novel? Mm-hmm. And then my adaptation is going to have to include those bits because this is how Moby Dick works thematically. It, like, builds ideas over the course of the novel. Often without
2: explicitly stating them at times. Yeah,
0: and it builds those ideas through, like, episodes that are not directly, like, causally related to each other. So you can't just adapt the events from the novel because then you won't have, like, the thematic basis for the things that make those events matter. And I think what we see in this musical is because Dave Malloy didn't really want to cut anything, but it's impossible to make the show without cutting anything, The things that he ended up cutting were not purposeful.
2: Or where they were purposeful, it was the Moby Dick and Half the Time style purposeful, where you're just removing the boring chapters, or you're compressing them, or you're the whale chapters, the... You know, he dropped the whiteness of the fucking whale, one of the thematic statements of the book. And that shows that what... Like, I don't think you can do that without at least maybe mentioning it or, like, incorporating bits of it elsewhere if you want to hit the kind of themes he was interested in with this musical. He didn't want to make Moby Dick the Adventure Story or Moby Dick the Tragedy of Ahab or even Moby Dick, Ishmael goes on a nice cruise and gets a boyfriend, oh no. (laughs) He wanted to make Moby Dick in all its weird glory, and then he dropped the Whiteness of the Whale, which is just... It's beyond a coward's move. It's just absolutely incomprehensible to me. Um, And I do have a thought on, very briefly, on how you could do a musical kind of like this one, which is frame it around, well, we'll get eventually to more stuff that I'll, I'll bring back to this as well, but frame it around Ishmael as author. Ishmael is trying to tell the story of his time on the Pequod. He's trying to make sense of it. And he is kind of stupid in certain emotional ways, very clever in terms of his intellectual knowledge, and terrible at telling a story. You know that line, it's but a draft of a draft, which Melville writes and, like, presents the idea that Ishmael is perhaps incomplete or it doesn't feel totally certain of his ability to present this because it's so large? That comes up in this musical, but he's really not doing that, because if he were really leaning into it, he wouldn't be trying to present a musical reckoning, he'd be trying to present Moby Dick, an, a bunch of songs, I think they go together. And like, that could be really charming, in my opinion. An Ishmael-centric Moby Dick adaptation that's kind of, that where Ishmael is constantly commenting on things in a way that's actually interesting and characterful, and makes it clear that this is Ishmael's attempt to make sense of the events of Moby Dick, that means some things are out of order, that means we're missing big chunks of narrative from the book, and we get a bunch of the weird stuff and the obsessions that here are treated as kind of embarrassing.
0: Yeah, I think Moby that's one Dick one adaptation. way to do it.
2: <laughs> and And I'll explain why I think that would actually fit what Malloy was going for much better than what he wrote when we get to, like the chase third day where there's some relevant elements. But um, in the meantime, I think we can safely say that, oh, there's one thing in, um, that I'm curious about for, or I want to draw attention to in um, symphony, the symphony, which is does Fidala appear like on stage or involved in the symphony at all? Do you remember? I
3: don't think so.
4: No, not in a meaningful way.
3: Like, I, I think it was
4: two people standing on a stage with a spotlight talking. It was two uh, people standing on a
3: stage in a spotlight talking, and disappointing. Like the I the Fidala shows up with everyone else in kind of the chaos that is mm-hmm. the chase part one, two, and three, and it, it's it's just not interesting. Like I just don't understand why so much importance was given to this scene in particular. Like, yeah. I mean, I understand why someone would in an adaptation, but it just, I I don't get why Dave Malloy thought it was a good idea to do it like this. Yeah. And, because Dave Malloy doesn't differentiate between the moments when something is sung and something is going to be dialogue because the distinction doesn't matter to him. It's kind of meaningless.
2: Yeah, I mean. So I
3: just, I, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's using the same source text and treating it basically the same way in both cases. So it makes sense that the sung spoken uh, dichotomy is less present for him when he's just cutting pages out of Moby Dick and slapping them into his script. Um, but in this case, there is a change at the very end of it because re- in the sim- in the version in the book, Starbuck is sort of invited by Ahab to uh, to understand him, to look him in the eye. This is the moment when Ahab might possibly have turned aside because it's the moment where Ahab is like, feeling deeply sentimental and emotional, and he re- and Starbuck reaches out to him, and he reaches out to Starbuck, and they have this moment of connection, and then Ahab asks Starbuck to come with him all the way to recognize that, no, it wasn't Ahab's fault he lost his leg, something did this to him, something treated him wrong, that God has wronged him. And in the book, what happens is Starbuck looks away, Starbuck leaves because he can't bear The blasphemous sorrow of his captain. He can't bear Ahab's tragedy and Ahab's, like, uh, you know, uh, anger at God. So he leaves, and what happens instead is when Ahab looks up, the only person there is Fadala, who silently joins him at the side of the rail, because Fadala does think Ahab is at war with God, and he's prepared to set Ahab to fight it and lose. Fidala does see Ahab as having this, like, antagonism with God that, uh, you know, Starbuck thinks is blasphemous to uh, apprehend or to declare. Fidala just thinks God is going to win. And he's setting things up for that. That's not present here, even a little. That's just not something that's going on here. And instead, it ends with the appearance of Moby Dick. So we never get a chance for Starbuck to uh, reject Ahab's, like, request to understand him.
3: Yep, and this is where we finally see a rep- visual representation of Moby Dick himself.
2: Yeah, I've been... I'm so excited. You know, we have those balloons of, of whales. We have this, like, big ship set. You know, there's some some odd decisions that have been made. But I'm really excited to see what they did for Moby Dick. You know, the central whale. How do you represent Moby Dick on stage?
3: Well, what they did was that they turned on all of the lights in the back... And, like, sort of on stage. So just a big flash of white, like, that the audience sees... And then the band plays a big, like, bwomp sound.
2: Cool. <sighs> it's a whale, I guess. <laughs> I, I mean, guess that's oh. a whale, because
3: it's the whiteness of the whale. And so they're like, you. they want it to be visually impactful and terrifying, so they just flash a bunch of lights at you and play a loud sound.
2: Yeah, I look, I believe this could be good. Like, the idea that the way you represent Moby Dick is, like, a bright white flash, um, which... Let's be clear. That's like a strobe, right? Like that's a that's something that you probably want to warn people about. Did they do that? Nope. Cool. I they we we talked about this in version yep, one of yep. this recording. The
3: musical just doesn't for for all of the talk it like has about you know every social justice cause cause in the world. It um, doesn't worry about anything. Like, the whole reason um, I knew about the sperm part and the very physical, jokey way they're doing it is because I was warned about it beforehand by someone who knew that that was, like, a weird trigger for me.
1: Mm-hmm. The yeah.
3: musical doesn't tell anyone about that. So a bunch of people are just, like, kind of thrust on stage randomly, and it's like, oh, this is what we're doing now. Touch the and sperm for anyone pile. Who's yeah. touched a sperm pile. And anyone who's, you know, photosensitive... They they get no warning about these big flashing lights that are going to start happening. It's And
4: they warned about the motion sickness and on it, those little it's a small world boats that like it is just barely moves
3: cuz that was the only reason that you didn't go Yeah, it was going to go down. Yes. The tragedy. Well, I, like, oh,
4: I get motion sick. Because and like, and
3: like, Clay gets extremely motion oh, sick. Easy. Like, we need to establish this. <laughs> and so
0: the fact that it was nothing was...
4: Yeah, it was like, yeah, the that, fact oh, that they, yeah, okay, I don't get motion sick on a carousel.
0: The fact that they <laughs> warned about something that was a clear non-issue, they didn't warn about something that is, like, an obvious, like, accessibility issue um, with the flashing lights. And they also didn't warn about something that is, like, an obvious kind of
2: Weird, Contact? upsetting situation, like
0: like uh, uh,
2: physically per- engaging with sexually not explicit but highly innuendoed weird stuff,
0: right? Like like they didn't say anything about like like children maybe not wanting to participate yeah. in the sperm yeah. touching, um, and that they had the fucking like. By the way, we're on the unceded land of at the beginning. So funny to me, like oh, here's the important thing to get out at the top. The sort of like anodyne, pointless mentioning of like indigenous peoples and we're not going to do the things that like actually have some kind of effect on marginalized people in the audience mm-hmm. yeah it's
2: it's not well organized it's not well thought out and it's not actually doing anything for anyone those are that that's the, that's the musical we can stop now
3: <laughs> yeah so uh, end of podcast thank you for listening <laughs> exactly
2: uh but yeah no the um yeah the sperm thing in particular is is very weird and upsetting and the degree to which it's like aha we've got you on stage now now you will decide whether to touch the sperm or be a spoil sport is just like I cannot imagine that that did not get discussed and they were basically like yeah we'll trick people into touching our sperm
1: Ugh. we'll touch we'll it's trick like people cause...
2: into gr- squeezing Dave Malloy's sperm on the sperm yeah, pile. We... <sighs>
3: We'll trick a bunch of people into like miming the sexual act. I'm sure people won't have any issues with that at all
0: yeah yeah no it's it's gross um i agree uh Ugh. and like i
3: it just, it, it can, oh, I, I'm, I'm mad about it. I'm really yeah, mad about yeah. it. Like everything that this show says it stands for and then does the exact opposite in every single way. It's comedic. It's like SNL would make a skit about trying to be conscientious in an adaptation and then just like doing everything wrong.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's doing everything wrong but in ways that like have the precise valence of who Dave Malloy is and what his politics are in a very impressive way. Like it's not just like slapstick failure; it's deeply Malloyical. <laughs> Malloy. I think
4: about. Well, you remind. It's like you know when people talk about like the room and how it's a fascinating portrait of a bunch of very specific things that Tommy Wiseau is obviously preoccupied with.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
4: Right, it's that thing where you have these sufficiently bad things that end up just like failing totally on their own merit, but then being these incredible, just laser focused views into
3: the
2: neuroses of the one person guy.
3: It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that—that's this for Dave Malloy.
2: <laughs> yeah, the hmm, I think a lot of Dave Malloy's work is that for Dave Malloy. Yeah,
4: I mean Octet.
2: <laughs> yeah, here's the thing, though. The room isn't a musical, and doesn't make you sit no. through songs. It makes you sit through a lot else, but not songs. So maybe it's coming out on top. <laughs> oh, it
4: does! It totally comes out. It is much shorter.
2: Yeah, that is really the important part.
3: <laughs> and it's and it's funny, even accidentally. It's mm-hmm. funny.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I I'm unlikely to quote. Okay, there are some things in Act uh, in uh, Chase uh, Three I might quote, but specifically to harm Mark.
0: I mean. <laughs> Listen, I've become very used to people quoting The Room to harm me ever this since I changed true. my name. Oh my, oh oh my
1: god. god. Yeah,
0: no, listen. it's, it's I've done, I, that. I've done it, that. It happens to me constantly. Everyone thinks they're very funny. We um. are. <laughs> um.
2: Sorry, that was so obnoxious.
0: I've also never seen The Room, by the way. But <laughs> well, we should sometime. Oh, I have also never it's, seen The Room. It's
2: better than listening to this musical, so...
0: uh <laughs>
2: Well, I
4: know what we're watching after this.
2: No, don't do this <laughs> oh, to This me. is terrible. This is terrible. I, I, I promise not to inflict the room on anyone who doesn't want it. Let's move on to uh, the chase first day.
4: <laughs> this, however, we are inflicting.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, we've inflicted this on ourselves multiple times at this point, and it's it is an infliction. Uh, it is an affliction. <laughs> um, I. So, I want to briefly get out of the way my big thing about these three songs, The Chase First Day, The Chase Second Day, and The Chase Third Day. There's three chapters in Moby Dick. The Chase First Day, The Chase Second Day, The Chase Third Day. Each of these chapters has a very similar structure, and it does—it can't even feel almost, like, rigid. But it's very fast. The musical does not have that quality. The musical has some of the rushedness of that section, but in the novel, that rushedness feels really, like, Deliberate. We've finally seen Moby Dick. This is the moment of crisis. It's a moment of crisis that lasts multiple chapters and various events, but everything has culminated in this. That's why these three chapters are all titled The Chase. This is not really how it feels with this musical. It just feels like things have started stumbling at speed towards a conclusion.
0: Yeah. These These songs... ...do not, I think, have a sense of, like, drama and climax. They feel repetitive.
2: Yeah. And,
0: and like, not purposefully
3: repetitive. Because I feel like, again, musically, wouldn't it be interesting if there was, like, either a series of three short songs... ...or just, like, one song in three parts... With a lot of repetition and a lot of structure, and when it breaks from that, that's when it's like, oh wait, this is meaningful thematically and musically. Yeah. Like, what if what if that was a thing? Yeah. It doesn't do it. It's just an extended section, which, like, like I, well, I mean, I won't say that these songs aren't sort of divided because each of them are kind of separated by the big bra and, yep. like, flashing lights. Yep,
2: yep. The, the presence um, of the white whale, sort of.
3: Yeah, so it's like it's divided, but it's not separate.
2: Yeah, yeah, and there's like clanging on a bell and saying first day and second day, and there's like it's almost like we're supposed it's to be. It's
3: like that SpongeBob thing where Mr. Krabs <laughs> and the, the, like,
2: the cowbell. No, right, it totally is. Like, but the thing is, so for those who are not aware of the SpongeBob meme, uh, it's <laughs> a SpongeBob is continuously doing patties with, like, one hour of sleep or something for, like, a week. Because Mr. Krabs has decided to have the Krusty Krab be open 24 hours a day because he wants to outdo Plankton's 23 hours a day. And SpongeBob (laughs) is slowly being physically destroyed by this. And so you get this montage that has Mr. Krabs, you know, yelling yo, fourth day, and, like, clanging a bell, and he, like, floats over SpongeBob's haggard face. And that's the exact same vibe this is going for, which is bizarre, since the previous Horrible Monotony song was all soft and gentle, three years, we just became the worst of what we were, and now that it's, like, just three days of intense, specific challenge that each time you are thrown out of the boat and you get back in and you decide to face death again... This time, it's being treated like Mr. Krabs floating across the screen going, Three <laughs> days! Ding, 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 ding. I can't do a Mr. Krabs voice even a little.
4: Thank God. Then he's looking no! at me because I can.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh.
3: You don't have to do it, but it would be very funny. me <laughs> boy. Oh, yes, yes.
2: <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Please, I would like you to say for me, for hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee.
4: Oh, Sp- SpongeBob, my boy! For hate's sake, I,
2: I spit my last breath at thee. I love God. you. Thank you so much. That <laughs> I, I want, I want. I mean, okay. I would love a Muppets version of Moby Dick because I would love a Muppets version of many things. But I would love a SpongeBob version of Moby Dick. Now,
0: wait—is there any way did- SpongeBob never did done. that? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm Googling this. There's no way that there's never been, like, an Ahab guy with a peg leg on Spongebob. Come on. That has to have happened. (laughs) There's a Moby Dollar.
2: A what? (laughs) Yes! Yes, there is! Yes! (laughs) Moby Dollar! Moby Dollar! Okay, according to
3: the the encyclopedia Spongebobia, Moby Dollar... Is a giant dollar bill that Mr. Krabs dreams of catching one day. She (laughs) appears in the episode Sleepy Time. Description. Moby Dollar is a giant green dollar bill. She swims around the ocean and is quite flexible like a real dollar bill. (laughs) (laughs) Abilities and talents. Moby Dollar has the ability to spit out pennies. She can also quickly hop around land to quickly reach the ocean. You know what Uh, I... Roll in the episode. Moby Dollar appears throughout Mr. Krabs' dream. Dream Mr. Krabs successfully catches her with the help of Dream Spongebob. However, she escapes and Spongebob does not keep an eye on the net. Uh,
0: You know what I love about this? Is that uh, Moby Dollar, this like uh, cartoon Moby Dick sort of as a dollar bill from a dream sequence in a Spongebob episode, has more like distinct moves, has more of like a, a set of powers than Moby Dick does in this musical. Yeah. Which is, this is, like, to me, the big, big failing of these chase songs is Mm -hmm. that, like, we do not have any sense of the, like, steps of the combat between Ahab and Moby Dick. Like, the essence of these chapters is that, like, Moby Dick keeps, like, doing shit that is, like, completely fucking wild. He keeps, like, attacking in ways that no one is prepared for. Yeah,
2: he, so... Very early on in the musical, there's the use of this idea in a very weird way that didn't scan well for music. But Malloy uh, of Moby Dick, like looking like a little white weasel down below and then coming up larger and larger. That's the thing he does during the chase. Similarly, he also swims in a big circle to make a whirlpool around Ahab and he's, like slowly <laughs> oh drowning my God. him. Like Moby Dick has a Pokemon move set. <laughs>
0: Moby Dick, use whirlpool. Like, it's
2: super effective.
0: And if you don't, <laughs> if you don't have that, the chase is just like, damn, it's it's three days of more whaling, I guess. Yeah, like three days of and, we keep
2: not catching this whale, and there's no sense of like, why do you keep not catching this whale? You just keep going out and failing to catch the whale, I guess. <laughs>
4: you know, um, oh. I, I am Moby Dick, Blade of the Pacific, and I have never known defeat. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that energy if you're gonna if you're gonna choose to adapt the chase in this much granular detail if you're gonna include all three days rather than as i think most adaptations do just kind of abstracting it into a single climactic scene of chase then you've got to do the things that make each day of the chase notable you've got to have all of the ups and downs and the events
2: the character drama the way that like You know, this final crisis plays out through all of the characters as they face down the whale. There's so much there, and there's so little here.
3: Also, I feel like this is the moment where all of the whaling descriptions from early on pay off. Because by by explaining all of the whaling, you are training the readers slash the audience of like, this is how typical whaling happens. This is how whales behave. This is how we do the same. And then when it gets
2: to do certain things, yeah. (laughs)
3: yeah and so when you get to this final big confrontation with Moby Dick it's like wow all of the things we told you about none of that seems to be happening here something is going wrong this musically feels like a time to do like a reprise of a wailing song yeah no but you know things are going back.
4: dubstep and also bring the people back on stage but like Kick one in the shins or something,
1: (laughs)
2: Yeah, like, okay, who wants- Push him out
4: of the boat. Who wants to get on- Give him motion sickness for real. (laughs) Who wants
2: to get on stage and hunt Moby Dick, and after the first whaling voyages, it's all super chill. But, you know, uh, if this were the novel, Ishmael would have warned you that, you know, whales have been known to do these dastardly and terrifying things, Moby Dick in particular. You've been warned that Moby Dick is not like many other whales. He is like this exceptional class of terrifying, man-killing whales. But in the musical, you don't have to do that. You can just have this placid boat ride. Maybe do it once or twice. So the first time you do it, everyone's like, okay, motion sickness. Then it's a small world after all, and it's kind of charming. Then you get the second time, and it's the same kind of thing, and, you know, you can have things. then the third time, you do this, and you just, like, knock the boats over. And, like, when the music, you know, happens, there's just screaming, and it's just terrifying for the people huddling in the boats. And then it's like... The chase, second day, who wants to get in the boats to face Moby Dick again? And just, like, you just have, like, the crew on stage, like, cracking their knuckles and, like, hoisting their harpoons, and the audience, ideally, some idiots are gonna run up, and, like, they're like, okay, one second, safety waiver? Okay, cool. And just terrify them. Fucking make it clear that you are signing up to fight Moby Dick, like everyone on the fucking Pequod did when Ahab did the quarterdeck speech.
0: You know what this is making me think about? Uh, one of the Moby Dick adaptations that we're going to cover at some point in the future. Yeah,
2: we're going to talk about it, yeah.
0: Well, which is a Moby Dick-themed roller coaster. Yeah. <gasps> oh, yes. I feel Wait, like... Where is it? I, I feel One of my, like, hyperfixations is theme parks. Oh, so this say. is very nice. relevant to my interest. Yeah, yeah. This is a... I, I think it is called, like... Hakuse? Yeah, Hakuge. Hakuge. Because oh, right. <laughs> a different thing in total. Hakuge means Whoops. white whale. Yep. And uh, so it's it's not technically named Moby Dick, but it's, like, this is the phrase that gets used to mean, like, the white whale mm-hmm. in Japanese. Yep, yep. Um, And, yeah, my wife is also into theme parks and into roller coasters. Uh, and so when I was, like hey, I want people to talk to me about Moby Dick adaptations. She was like, well, do you want to talk to me about a roller coaster? And just even from this moment, I'm already thinking, I bet that roller coaster has more of the spirit of wailing and of the chase of Moby Dick than this musical does.
1: <sighs>
0: oh, wow, this is an intimate roller coaster. Hang on, I pulled it up on yeah, the TV. Yeah. no, no. very
2: interesting to me. Look, look, we... I'm so sorry to say this, but we can't burn content for a future podcast here. We need to focus on the horrors of Malloy. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Uh, One thing that happens in the chase first day before we can finish that and move on is that Fidala says something that makes no sense whatsoever in the context of this musical or Fidala, which is... Oh, captain, my old captain, fallen flat-faced on the water, the ocean won't sustain your madness much longer. So, first of all, it's a weird little couplet to put in Fidala's mouth. Um, It's, you know, it's just purely like, aha, we're moralizing via Fidala, the weird one. But it's also, he calls Ahab my old captain, which makes no sense. He calls Ahab old man many times in the novel, but he doesn't say my old captain because... One of the important things about Fadala that becomes clear is that while at first it seems as though Fadala is, like, Ahab's secret, like, ally and, like, his weird, hidden, you know, orientalized uh, minion, the revelation that Ahab and Fadala are actually locked in this kind of theological battle representing opposing forces and ways of understanding the world, the fact that Fadala is setting Ahab up to die means that that kind of comradeship is both bizarre because... They haven't been sailing together a bunch. And also, just weirdly out of place, and I just dislike it. This is my ongoing thing. Yeah. Dave Moy does not understand what Fidala was. He only sees the Orientalism, and he doesn't even see that in a way that's useful.
4: It's only a Walt Whitman reference.
2: Oh, is it?
3: The Oh, Captain, My Captain. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God,
4: you're right. Like The f- fallen flat face that, you know, lying, f- we're on the deck, my captain lies, lying, fallen. In de- it's just a reference to Oh, Captain, My Captain.
2: Oh, yeah, and it's because and because um, Ahab is described as falling flat-paced upon the sea. Now, the way Ahab does this would be really cool to represent somehow on stage, because what happens is Moby Dick comes up from below the ship and puts his jaw around it, his great crooked scythe-like jaw around the whaleboat that Ahab is on. The rest of the crew has leaped off the boat, and Ahab is, like, physically, like, standing face-to-face with Moby Dick. He doesn't have his harpoon, which has been knocked aside, and... He runs up and, like, grabs Moby Dick's jaw to try and push it off the whaleboat to prevent Moby Dick from, like, you know, destroying the boat he's on. But the, the jaw is too strong and he can't do it, and ultimately he's flung from the boat and lands flat-faced in the water as the jaw closes and crushes the boat he's in. That's really cool, and it's, like, a physical struggle, and it's one in which Ahab's missing leg makes him less capable of doing the thing he's trying to do. And it creates this combination of, like, brutal failure and, like, incredible direct struggle against Moby Dick, which is not in any way present here. Yeah, no. No, it's... It's
3: like whatever action happens in the book, just assume none of it happens. No, no, on I stage. got. I
2: put that one together. Uh, so second day.
3: Second day.
2: Ding 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 ding. <laughs> arr, arr, arr. I, I shouldn't try. Um, uh, <laughs> Good job. It's, uh, but yeah, no, you've got uh, more cheering death to the white whale. Um, there's a few quotations from the book that are nice, but. Uh, you know, it's just the same thing again. There is the return, so briefly, just once, of Where Is Ahab, the musical motif. We have a real musical, folks. Pack it up, we're done here.
4: Where is Ahab?
2: And then it's done, and, and it doesn't and come And then,
4: then he answers it by saying, oh man, it took my leg again.
2: Yep, yep. <sighs> he lost his leg again we're not going to really do much at all with that. We're not going to talk about the whole, like, concept there or how his leg gets broken and what it means for him to be missing a leg. I don't think they even do the quotation about Ahab's souls a centipede that moves upon a hundred legs. No, they don't. Uh, what a good line. It's missing here.
4: What? That's a really good line? Why is yeah. that not there? Like-
2: <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, um, when Ahab is, like, um... Ahab has this moment of, like, absolute abjection because his body has failed him, the leg is lost again, he wasn't able to kill Moby Dick, and it's like, it's his spirit within his body cannot succeed at this thing he's trying to do, and it's just awful for him. He, like, he has, like, a breakdown in the boat, but then he gets over, he gets back up, and he says, you know, sure, my body is old and breakable, I'm missing a leg, I'm missing a leg again, but Ahab's soul's a centipede that moves upon a hundred legs. Ahab is forever Ahab, man. The whole act's immutably decreed. Ahab is facing this, like, the fundamental challenge and trauma and anger of Ahab at, at his body's destruction by the white whale and, and his anger at God, and he's facing it in the moment of his challenge, and he's saying, no, I am... I move upon a hundred legs. It doesn't matter what happens to my body. The real and essential personality of Ahab has not been broken and will not be broken. I will still, until the end, you know, I will run my body until it breaks, and I don't care. I will kill the white whale. That's, like, this intense and, frankly, heroic in the sense of, like, a Greek hero quality of Mm -hmm. Ahab's. Obviously, if Ahab is meant to be fundamentally bombastic... Terrible! the thing leading the American ship, the American hearse, into its watery grave, you gotta cut some of that, I guess. But, like, you cut some of it. You don't remove, you know, the whole act immutably decreed, Ahab is forever Ahab, or anything like that, because you love the verbal pyrotechnics, if you're Dave Malloy. You love the feeling of the book, so you gotta keep going back to it, even as you're undermining what it's trying to do with him, because you need him to be something different. A man. Yeah,
3: that's just the thesis statement. <laughs> <Yes>.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
3: Anything okay, else about um, the chase
2: second day? Other than well, I guess when, Sorry, go on? Hmm? Other than uh, no, go ahead. Other than Fidala vanishes. Yeah. He's lost.
3: Uh I don't remember how the leg loss happens.
2: It I I mean Degu says he's lost his leg again.
4: Yeah, I... I
2: think that... This
4: is a part where I do not remember... I don't remember a lot of this part, not because it's... One, because, you know, I was now... We were two hours, 50 minutes into <sighs> this, and you start getting tired, you know?
2: Yeah, but, no, it's, a, it's an endurance challenge.
4: But specifically... It, I just don't remember it being that interesting. There was no visual representation of the white whale, other than the periodic blinding. Mm. <laughs> so you're mostly watching these people on their. It's a small world boat, circling.
1: Yeah. Again. Yeah. Yeah.
4: And it's more, but everyone's you know has more energy. But there's a limit to how much you can jump around and have energy on it. It's a small world boat.
2: Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. And, like, I wish they'd gone a little bit... Like, if they're going to go with the big white flash, if they're going to go with the big discordant sound, and those are communicating Moby Dick, you could have just had the boats be, like... To describe a thing in a little bit goofy, just have, like, a little cardboard standee kind of thing of, like, the image of the side of a whale boat and some waves and so on, and have them running around and lunging with harpoons and stuff behind that, so it looks vaguely but you know entirely fictionally you're you're aware that's not what's going on like they're in whale boats and you know whaling and so on and you know have some cool like poses with harpoons all together and you know have various things you can do with your big flash of white light and your sound and the, and the Admission that you're not going to be able to directly reproduce Moby Dick and make it clear that he exists, but you are going to talk about all his terrifying move sets or something. You're going to make it clear how big and scary he is in a way that isn't kind of half-assed.
4: You know, my dream here would be for when people get pulled off, they should either be like pulled off stage with a wire or drop down a... Like trapped, oh, off. That- if you're gonna do the mm-hmm. big noise and the stuff. Literally, just make the theater into Moby Dick for this. Oh, that's portion. really
2: good, especially if you can I make really them like vanish faster than like make it maybe multiple flashes of white. Obviously, strobe light warning or a con- a continuous flash of white that's like pretty blinding so that you can make them vanish during the confusion of Moby Dick's presence like have Moby Dick effectively sweep the stage and afterwards the boats have all been tossed over Ahab's lying on the ground you know in the water and people are missing
3: yeah like and and I feel like this is where the specific directing and choreography of yeah, this moment yeah. will matter the most because you know if we have every notable person doing something very like visually compelling or like visually distinctive when they stop doing that that means something to the audience
1: yeah like yeah. their
3: absence means something to the cohesion of the choreography yeah yeah um, I also keep thinking about this one like uh, it it was like a a high school play. Um, I forget what it was, but they represented the water by having a bunch of, like, big purple not purple, blue, the, like, big blue sheets kind of being waved Mm -hmm. around, like, (laughs) the wine dark sea, sorry. Um, Like, they were kind of stretched to, like, both sides of the stage into the wings, and they would kind of be flapped up and down so it looked like a wave, and there was one in front of and behind the actors, Mm -hmm. and they acted in the middle of it, so they could kind of represent being in the water, which is, like, uh, I feel like like a lot of things have done that with water, but that is more visually compelling than what we saw as, like, the ocean, because the ocean is also a big part of it, like, it's, the the little boats are the only thing standing between you, Moby Dick, and the ocean, Mm -hmm. the literal ocean, which is a
0: terrifying thing just by itself, so, I don't know.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a really good point, because, like, the, uh, when we talk about, like, Moby Dick's moves, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Some of (laughs) what he does involves, like, straight up
2: biting slapping etc. Yeah,
0: but a lot of his attacks are really about attacking the boat and yeah. like breaking the boat because if and you're not in making
2: your... a giant whirlpool.
0: Exactly. He he's he he mobilizes the idea of like being of people falling into the water and then being caught up in the water. That's yeah. like the real danger. And that's some the thing level. that
2: happened to Pip as well. That is the, one of the huge dangers of the whale chase is less that you will be instantly killed by a whale, though that can happen. You can get hit by the whale's tail or get your leg torn off by its terrible scything jaw, for example. But you know, the, the physical presence of the whale is also within a medium that is the whale's life, you know, life place rather than yours. And this is one place where I do think we should return to Hamilton because we mentioned the like the the minimalism the the maximalist minimalism of this style of presenting things on stage and how much that's like clearly aping Hamilton. Right. I think we talked about mm-hmm. like the the history of Hamilton and this show in like the first episode, I believe.
0: Yeah, I believe we did. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. and. So, and I think we talked then about the idea that Hamilton is really, like, super machined and efficient. It's really put together incredibly closely. One may not agree with all of its politics, I certainly don't, and one may, in fact, sometimes find it obnoxiously over-machined, overly fit together into this, like, clockwork that, you know, just hums along. I believe that was... uh Clay, you mentioned this as, like, a concern you have about Hamilton, an an issue you have with it.
4: Yeah, especially my thing is with the lyrics, where Mm -hmm. sometimes they are so overly, like, overly machined that there's no space in the tolerances, for lack of a better word, for actual, like, emotion.
1: Mm. Yeah, You know, you have
4: these, these extremely bombastically verbal bits, and you're just waiting, like, you know, there's no room for this person to take a breath and... Let something rest. Even when it's not fast, it's very. And some of them are. Sometimes it's not always that, but you know. You know but what like I'm it's like they it work
3: sometimes and it doesn't work all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So that's, that's the thing that I think is a really good comparison here, which is one thing that's very clearly true about Moby Dick, A Musical Reckoning, Dave Malloy's 2019 take on Herman Melville's uh, Great American Novel, is that there's so much flex. There's so much. Empty space Mm -hmm. and wiggle room and it's not used in a way that makes it breathe It just feels like it wasn't competently doing the thing. It was clearly copying So like if you wanted to have that kind of flex and wiggle room You could have a more cluttered stage with a lot more going on you could have more sets more stuff Because that means that it feels a little bit more like texture But this kind of minimalism means all this focus is constantly on the people that are on stage and by having them move around very kinetically in Hamilton, I think that it does a really good job, from my perspective as someone who isn't hugely a theater person, certainly not hugely a musical theater person, especially on, the like, production and technical side. Hamilton is constantly visually interesting. It's constantly moving. Everything is moving, like, in super close time. There's, like—there's fucking, like, virtuoso obnoxious moments. Like, the fact that there's, like, during a duel, they do, like— bullet time slow everything down and rotate the actors like it's the fucking Mm -hmm. matrix and you're watching a camera trick and like here's the thing hamilton is a well-constructed musical and that effect is actually really cool you have like everything pauses and a character steps out of time to talk about things during this duel which is you know the climactic moment in the you know spoilers hamilton has a duel in it it's a climactic moment (laughs) and Building on motifs from earlier, all of it has been so well prepared that the visual language and kinetic language has no need for either explaining itself or even, like, realism. Like, again, you can just pause in the middle of a duel and do things, and it still feels like there's a clock counting down towards the moment the guns go off, even as you're doing a fucking matrix rotation of the actors. (laughs)
3: Right. And it's like it works because there is literally a song earlier on in the musical that tells you how duels work. Yes. It tells you how they work like in the narrative and how you as the audience are like seeing this visualization of a duel. There is a dancer always in the chorus that represents the bullet. <laughs> yeah. And that's a, and like not literally because like in those scenes, it's not like someone walks from one end of the stage to another. But it like it represents like when people are going to die in a little bit. Like, there's always some interaction with the dancer who is the bullet.
2: Yeah, there's a bunch Uh, of things like that which set up this, like, very strong visual and choreographed structure that means that even as you're doing a huge dance number around something that's totally unrealistic to, like, you know, the presumed actual events of a duel, it represents it very directly and it represents it in a very dense manner. And this wailing does not sound like it does even a fraction of that. It's too caught up in, first of all, literally representing little boats, and then also failing to literally represent the events of the chase in action because the boats won't allow it, because that would be a step too far because they haven't figured out how to actually make this work. Like, it feels like there's a couple cute ideas in there, and then a lot of it has just been left on... uh, It's kind of like Hamilton.
1: (sighs) (sighs)
4: And it's frustrating because of all of the focus and, for lack of a be- like better word, like budget,
1: mm-hmm. both
4: creativity and both budget of like literal money and creativity and mm-hmm. direction and stuff went earlier when you know. Okay, I know that the wailing chapters are important, but I think I would rather have them put the money into the part where he says, "From hell's heart, yeah, I, I stab at I think... thee." Um, <laughs> yeah,
2: it's. It's wild, because from what you've described, there's a ton more, like, visual and stylistic stuff going on in, the like, the bits that are, like, almost ashamed of the book. The bits where it's like, here's our goofy whale chapters, here's our goofy vaudeville number, here's all this stuff, here's us, you know, apologizing for the existence of Fadala in this musical, but not enough to not put Fadala in the musical. Like, all these... All these things get more stylistic and structural differences, and all this stuff going on. And it feels like part of that is that I think Dave Malloy was much more concerned with blunting those and making sure that we understand he gets the joke and he's not really a fan of the Wailing chapters. And they're, you know, he understands they're unnecessary as well and they're wrong, they're scientifically wrong. He wants that to be communicated, and he's going to go to great production lengths to communicate it. But then when it comes to fucking Hell's Heart, when it comes to The Chase, he's going to do what is basically necessary to put it on stage, but no more. He's not going to put vast amounts of energy into it, because he's not embarrassed of this bit. He thinks the words can just stand on their own, because he knows that everyone considers this a really powerful part of the novel. And the result is that the the bits he considers bad are good, and the bits he considers good (laughs) are bad. And also, yeah. he's wrong about which like... bits are which. Also, they're <laughs> all good. Um, <laughs> I, look, I'm a partisan, L- for Moby dick.
3: <laughs> Have you like listened to the to the podcast? Where yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, but um, yeah, no. I what I thought was really interesting, kind of going back to that idea of like what parts he thinks are good versus bad mm-hmm. is like. This is when we return to the idea of Ishmael being the reader yeah, of Moby Dick, yeah. the book, because we have uh, Ahab singing all of these lines and then immediately Ahab, oh, sorry, no, um yeah, Ishmael repeats it. Yeah, that's right. Like,
2: when spoken we get word. to like the hell's heart. So
0: Yeah, so let's oh, just yeah. let's just go to the chase third day because we're d- there's nothing more to say about the chase second no, day and we've no, already started talking we got tossing. far
2: more than was actually in the chase second day out yeah, of the chase second day. The chase
0: third day is a little bit Different from the first two, only in that it's got a much stupider, annoying, <laughs> framing thing.
2: Oh, yeah, it's it's structurally different in that it's stupider, and it's also different in that it is, it is the Moby Dick moment. It's the things that if you know about Moby Dick, you've heard about this bit— and it's, like, the climax of the story, it's the moment where everything goes wrong for Ahab and wrong for Ishmael, and it's, um, it angers me.
0: Yeah, it sucks, uh, because it's now all about uh, capital T trauma, guys. Um. <laughs>
4: yeah, I the I was, again, really baffled when we hit that, because I, yeah. this just, like, wasn't in the music, like, This is the first time we've heard about trauma. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. It's the first time we've heard about trauma in Moby Dick, a novel whose most famous character is completely obsessed with the physical loss of his leg in a moment that has defined him and his torn body and torn soul bled into one another. But yes, this is the first time the musical has cared about trauma. You are, in fact, 100% correct. I'm not being sarcastic here. I'm just mad at Dave Malloy.
0: Yeah, because like, yeah, this explicitly presents it as like this is the first time trauma has come up and it's like it feels like it's out of nowhere. It feels very like uh, I'm so pip. It feels bizarre and preachy, right? It feels like a fucking uh TikTok that is like explaining mm-hmm. to you what trauma dumping is or some shit. Um
2: and I think I have actually seen someone describe Moby Dick as uh a twink discru- a t- trauma dumps to you about whales for 600 pages. God. And it makes me mad.
0: That makes me <sighs> mad on a number of levels. But anyway, um, the, yeah, like there's this b- bizarre little speech that Ishmael gives about, about trauma. Does someone just want to read it? No, it's bad. <laughs> People can go look at the genius annotations themselves if they want this to. This is true. It's a dumb little speech about like what trauma is <laughs> and what the moment of trauma is in this story. And it... It identifies the moment of trauma as seeing Fidala's dead body, like, attached to Moby Dick, which is bizarre because, like, I mean, of course, that's a very upsetting thing to happen. Yeah. But this is also, I mean, we've already said this is in the story where Ahab has lost his leg, Pip has gone mad, um, Ishmael was suicidal in the beginning of the story. Mm-hmm. We've spent the mm-hmm. entire narrative wailing which is a terrifying and violent experience. And we're about to have the actual climax of the story, which is not seeing Fidala. The climax of the story is Ahab stabbing the fucking whale and then everyone dying. But no, the moment of trauma, that's seeing Fidala's dead body. Everything else is not that.
1: It,
4: genuinely, I don't understand. Like, I, I know we've this is maybe the one decision that I just can't track the logic at all.
0: There's a fascinating element here where it like is straight up contradicting itself within the song because like okay I guess I will read a tiny amount of this little speech mm-hmm. where this Ishmael speech about <laughs> me, this Ishmael speech about trauma he says uh, you don't remember before or after just the moment of the jolt bam so there's this idea that okay trauma means. A time, a moment that gets kind of lifted out of time and is disconnected in yep, your memory. There are moments
2: that loop in your head. Trauma distorts time, thanks, Eshmael. Uh,
0: okay, okay, okay. And the question of how much that is like true is like a thing I think I could fight with, but setting that aside and just being like, okay, sure, that's what trauma is, he then goes on at the end of the song to say, I know every word because I was on the boat. So explicitly, he does remember the moment right after this moment of seeing Fidala's body that he's calling the dramatic yeah. moment because he's telling us he remembers every moment and every detail because he yeah. was there.
2: He remembers the whole thing. He remembers the before and the after. It, maybe it loops in his head, but he gets all the details leading into it because that's the framing narrative of the novel.
0: So yeah, it's just completely absurd. Um, it It doesn't, It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I have
2: a bit of a logic as to why this is the moment of horror, the moment of trauma. And it's that, I mean, frankly, it's poorly done. It is not a well-constructed thing but it's the idea that Fidala and the American hearse, and the idea that, oh, we've revealed yeah. the first hearse, misunderstood. Uh, and the problem is that if you've said the first hearse is misunderstood, and you haven't had Ahab saying, ah, well, I'm invincible because the first hearse can be made of no human hands, and how will we see a hearse on the ocean? This is a moment in the book of, like, dawning horror, but it's dawning horror the way that, like, Macbeth learning that Duns- that. Like oh, Dunsonwood has come to bring him name. I don't remember the burn
0: mo- Burnhamwood has come to oh, Dunson damn it. Aim.
2: I'm a, I'm a fake Shakespeare fan.
0: I'm sorry, but um,
2: <laughs> the uh, this moment of realization that the impossible has occurred and Ahab's quest is doomed is a moment of like shock, and the thing happening is so gothic that it is itself something that shocks and appalls. But it's not the moment of crisis or the climax. It's the thing that says, and now the climax begins. But if you have made a big deal out of the American hearse, if you're thinking to yourself, but not necessarily actually putting into the text, that the American hearse is this central image, that we are, you know, all riding to it, then the idea that you have seen the first hearse and you're setting up the idea that we've all been riding the American hearse the entire time, that (sighs) could be... Sorry to get loud in this recording, by the way. I'm just just full of emotions. Um, That could easily be what Malloy was thinking, that he wanted to emphasize the hearse. He wanted to emphasize Fadala's, like, uh, you know, prophecy coming true. He wanted to emphasize that this is the moment where Ahab, who has seemed so in control and so in power fails and loses, and this doesn't super work because Ahab has been dealing with the loss of his leg the entire novel. So, like, the idea that this is the moment where Ahab realizes he is mortal and can lose, um, is weird. It's certainly, in the book, a weird and interesting dynamic, because, you know, Ahab's been actively discussing this and considering the possibility of his body breaking and not carrying him all the way and so on, and that's not really happening in the musical.
0: It sure isn't. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there's there's also uh, a line that is given to Ishmael here that, that makes that, me so mad. That infuriates the two of us. Um, which is the the moment when, uh, so you know, um, Moby Dick turns toward the Pequod to like ram it.
2: Yeah. Danny was building up to this earlier. I think very very intelligently, like pointing out what would need to be done to make this
0: work. Yes. And. What Ishmael says about it, oh, about this, yeah. like, moment of the whale turning around <laughs> oh, and directly attacking the ship, you know, showing, like, an evil intelligence and a desire oh. to harm. He says, and whales aren't supposed to do that. And <laughs> it's, ah! I, <laughs> uh, it's so bad because it's such a stupid sounding <sighs> line. It it sounds so prosaic. It's so
2: gormless.
0: Whales aren't and, supposed to do that. And the way he that, says
2: it, too.
4: It sounds whiny. <laughs> And whales aren't oh. supposed to do that. Yeah,
3: it reminds me of the the wonderful line from who knows how many songs ago about how whales don't also don't have
0: racism. Yeah,
2: whales don't have racism. God. They don't have yeah. hate, hate section, crimes. You're right. and whales
0: like, don't have hate crimes. But the thing about they this do. is the idea that <laughs> malevolently attacking a human ship like on purpose is not, is, like, outside of the possibility of whales, that, like, whales are animals, why would they do that? The novel, like... Ishmael is at pains throughout the novel to convince you that, no, 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 whales totally do that. Like, it's very... He he really wants... He knows that the idea of, like, a whale with an evil intent is maybe a little hard for his readers to believe. An
2: unstoppable hell-horror whale who can be anywhere, do anything, and cannot be killed. Little hard to swallow.
0: So he tries really hard to be like, look, here's all these stories of other whales that did things that cannot be interpreted in any other way than purposefully sinking ships. Whales have this degree of intelligence and this degree of malevolence. Like, he tries to prove it.
2: Yeah, and he, he wants you to believe that there are potentially natural explanations for Moby Dick so that when the supernatural explanations for Moby Dick are proposed, there's a genuine ambiguity. There's a genuine argument between Ahab's position, which is Moby Dick represents God and also must die, and Starbuck's position, Moby Dick is an animal who will probably kill you if you try to kill him. Why are you doing this?
0: Yeah, and so it's just like this This moment is bad on its face because it's just so goofy pathetic. sounding and pathetic. And, and it sounds like Ishmael is trying to rules lawyer the whale out of killing him. <laughs> You're not allowed to kill me. You're not allowed to kill me. And then it's also just, like, totally smashing a thing that is, like, so important to the novel.
1: <laughs> just yeah. like, what
0: the fuck is going on here?
2: <sighs> TikTok Ishmael sucks.
0: Yeah. TikTok Ishmael.
2: Yeah, and so, you know, uh, that happens. We are all poorer for it. <sighs> uh, <sighs> that... That really is just two incredibly bad lines in such close quarters with each other that this may be the worst song in the musical. But
0: It also has uh Ahab like singing the the famous From Hell's Heart I Stab at the lines, and then immediately after he says each line, Ishmael repeating it in kind of like a frantic tone. <laughs> and it 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 really undercuts the power of any of these lines, I think. Um, yeah. It really does. Also, I'm I'm just conceptually
3: surprised that the "From Hell's Heart I Stab It" the isn't the last line of the song. Yeah. Like, the song just continues after that, and it just, it, the line, the way it's delivered just sounds like every other line in this sequence, I guess? Yeah. And so just, like, you won't even notice that he said it unless you're looking for him saying that line. Yeah,
2: it's, it's more important to this musical that you understand that Ishmael knows all the words by heart and is, like, narrating yeah. this to you than to actually pay attention to the lines.
3: Also, there's that, like, okay, another Hamilton parallel, because, like, when when we have sort of, like, Washington's farewell address, we have Washington singing it, and then we have, I, I forget which character it is, sort of, like, saying, reciting it as it's happening. Mm-hmm. If, if Malloy really wanted to do that, he could have done that here, as in, like, I know all of the words, and so he says them at the same time as Ahab is singing them yeah it's possible
0: yeah if
3: he really if he was really committed to doing that i think it was about it it would have been a bad idea but if he was committed to doing it there was a way to make it musically stand out
2: yeah yeah no there's there's things you could do um also something that's really important here is that ishmael is super centered in this song like ishmael tells us about yeah. trauma in his tiktok ishmael whines <laughs> about TikTok. what whales are allowed to do ishmael barges in on Ahab's climactic moments to, to like, make them his own lines. Like, Ishmael here comes off as a bad storyteller, but not in the fun way the book does. He just comes off as someone who's, like, really insistent. You need to understand that he was there. He was part of this. I went to, like, you know, fucking... I went to the festival. I went to the protest. That's the important thing that happened here. Me. And it's really dumb because... Ishmael doesn't do that in the book. Ishmael mentions after describing this scene that he was able to describe the scene and survive because he had been substituted in for one of Ahab's usual uh, oarsmen because one of Ahab's oarsmen was lost in a previous day of the chase. We don't learn that until after the chase is done, and we don't—or, like, after Ahab's whole thing is done, and— We don't even learn that Ishmael has been swapped in for one of the rowers during the chase. Ishmael doesn't appear during the rest of the chase almost at all. He's not a figure in it because he's not a major figure in these events, and he's not a major personage, and he doesn't have to describe his death because he doesn't die. Ishmael's just there to narrate. He's out of focus. And that's what makes that sequence... Feels So sort of epic and you know Third person omniscient because Ishmael has sort of removed himself from it And then later says well you may not believe how I could possibly Tell you this here's how I survived And then he describes his own Experiences after Ahab Has been removed from the stage Instead here Ishmael directly involves himself in every second Of it and Ahab is just Not Not given that focus
0: Yeah there's, There's also sorry, go on. Are you about to talk about the last line yeah, of the song? Yeah, I'm also going
2: to talk about the last line mm-hmm. of the song.
0: Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, because the last the last like line of this song is that like Ishmael and the crew both say Ahab, and then Ahab says, "Who are you?" And I, what I think I recall from when we talked about this before was that neither of you could remember any kind of staging indication as to who he was saying that to.
4: I think he was saying it to the audience.
0: Like, just saying it to... Um, there was no... He didn't... T- it's
4: either he, the audience or Ishmael, but they're the same person. Yeah. So. yeah. But
0: he didn't, like, turn towards any particular direction as he says this line in a way that would, like, give us some kind of Context, suggestion. Context,
2: understanding, idea. It's
3: because the thing is, I don't remember where anyone was at the stage at this point because, like, I don't remember how this battle plays out it's like i assume like ahab was in the small world boats but it just it's i can't remember any of it so i have no idea which way he was facing or if there was like you know the motion itself was
0: emphasized trauma
4: distorts time you can't remember anything.
0: but my point is mostly that like it's completely unclear who he's talking to.
2: Yeah, at least from the lyrics, and it certainly sounds like the staging didn't do the work necessary to make a quiet who are you clear as to who's being addressed. And, like, I can imagine the the cop-out version, which is Ahab saying, like, who are you in a way that could mean himself, the audience, his crew, Moby Dick, any of them. It's just, like, put out into the air. But that's bad, and if that was the intent, Malloy should feel bad for this and many other things. But... It's real weird to think about any of the individual possible answers there. Like, why would Ahab be questioning who Moby Dick is in the moment where Moby Dick does the thing he knows Moby Dick does? That just follows. And why would Ahab be questioning who the audience are? Like, what? how has his, like, attention been drawn to the audience in any way? I only have one answer that feels even, like, structurally reasonable, and it's really dumb. Bad, And it's that he's addressing the crew and Ishmael specifically because, you know, Ahab is Trump and Ahab is now at the end of this crisis. He's being addressed like, Ahab! They all, like, you know, turn to him and, you know, they're calling him to account. And he turns to the people who have, like, been what brought him here, the America whose ship he has now driven into the watery grave. And he goes, wait, you people exist? Who are you? Like, Mm-hmm. I think that is what is going, what is going on there. At least that's the only thing I can think of that makes sense of it. And it's just really, it doesn't. Uh, I don't like it. Yeah,
0: too to, bad. To me, what it really feels like is just an attempt to put something that feels evocative and ambiguous mm. in here. Yeah, uh, like mm-hmm. and and there's not. I don't think there's actually a a, thought. a content. I don't think there's content here. I think it's just. Well, this sounds mysterious. Yeah, that's
2: possible, mm. but that's even worse.
0: Yeah, I feel like Dave Malloy is just y-
3: using this like, this extensively, this idea of like, oh, what I said was ambiguous? That was on purpose. What do you think it meant, winky face? Mm-hmm. And it just, it, he, like, I, okay, I know I'm like putting words into someone else's mouth, but I feel like if Dave Malloy were confronted with a lot of these criticisms that we have of this musical... A lot of it would come down to either a you didn't understand it, or b it was supposed to be oh like an open interpretation, and you can't do that with a musical that's trying to very clearly at some point trying to make a point. This musical says that uh, perhaps the musical like says of itself that it's trying to reckon with the text and it's trying to say something. So the so if you come to me and tell me that this moment wasn't trying to say anything. Why are we here?
2: Yeah. Uh, speaking of why are we here, there's a song after it.
3: Oh, rip. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Oh, yeah. Oh, man, R-I-B. this song. Oh boy. This was when, in you know, a re-listen, genuinely, like I was smashing my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we've yeah, got
0: it's... we've got the last whale song interlude, which uh, I hope people remember. The whale song interludes were those totally obnoxious things where Tesh Tigo and Dagoo like talk about whale song and are both very, like, uh, people of color in touch with nature, and um, there's, like, bizarre, like, environmental doomerism. Um, yep. Yeah. And <laughs> in this one, it's kind of a... Uh, so this this is reworking an image from the novel where uh, the last like, like as the pequot is sinking, um, uh, I, I think it's just I think it's, like, just Dagu in the novel, isn't it? I think it's just Tashtigo, actually.
2: Um. Tashtigo is... Ha- so, Dagu and Tashtigo have been placed in the, um, crow's nest. So, they're the last two to sink on the, uh, on the ship. But Daegu is, uh, not involved in the, the image in question, which is Tashtigo is attempting to hammer Ahab's flag back, like nail it back to the mast. Yeah. And okay, that...
0: I checked. It is it is Tashtigo. You're right. Yep,
2: yep. And Tashtigo is working away at that. As the ship is sinking, he begins to hammer faster and faster, like he's desperately trying to finish this before the ship goes down. And as he does so, a seahawk flies, like, between his hand and the flag, and he smacks it with the hammer and just holds it there. So the hawk, the the, is, like, dragged down with him and the flag and the the Pequod all down into the whirlpool together. And the line in the book is, you know, the bird of heaven dragged down... Uh, uh, sorry, sorry.
0: It, well, it's... do it, you want to... Me- no, please do it, please do it. And so the bird of heaven, with archangelic shrieks and his imperial beak thrust upwards and his whole captive form folded in the flag of Ahab, went down with his ship, which like Satan, would not sink to hell till she had dragged a living part of heaven along with her and helmeted herself with it.
2: So, it's a cool image, and there's a ton of, like, wild symbolism of eagles and Ahab and, you know, Satan and all this stuff that draws on a bunch of stuff from the book, basically none of which is really being engaged with here.
0: Yeah, so so what what happens is, like... Uh, you know, Tashtego and Dagoo are both in this situation, and uh, uh, Dagoo's like, hey, watch out for that Skyhawk, and Tashtego doesn't catch the bird in the flag, and there's this little exchange where they're like, oh, we didn't capture the bird, yeah, we can change some things. Yeah, and...
2: Degu says, damn, I thought you were gonna whack that bird, and Tashtego says, what, and drag the bird of heaven down with the ship?
0: And it's it's such a funny line because the concept of, like, the bird of heaven or, like, the concept of birds in general has just not been in this show. Yeah. So it's – I mean, it only makes sense if you're me and Ben and you're like – that's wrong! Bir- you're, you're talking about the bird of heaven, but you don't know what you're talking about. But if you're just like a person watching, you're like, why is the bird of heaven now? What is the bird? <laughs> um, and they yeah. say this, like, we can change some things line, which is so funny because it... it little was, things. The way this is presented, it's like, oh, the only thing we've changed from the novel is that they don't actually kill this bird at the end. <laughs> and that's my, like, one tiny little improvement that I feel like I can make, is, like, I will allow this one
2: non-human animal to live
0: yeah exactly that's that's my idea of like a slightly kinder ending to this narrative yeah the it's a little lives.
2: change without changing the main story it's like you fucked up the main story so thoroughly you might as well just like go whole hog and let queequeg live like yeah, yeah. just just have queequeg survive on his coffin with ishmael and just <sighs> i realized that would. Also... sorry go on Oh
3: no! Go ahead, go ahead. And that sentence. And I realize I feel that like I would might be going to a different place.
2: Clash with the initial, like very, very introduction of the musical, where it's stated that, like, oh, this book really helps me when I think about having lost someone, and there's this strong implication that the someone that was lost is kind of being synonymized or connected with Queequeg, and so the idea that like Moby Dick is the book you turn to when you lose someone does make it a little harder to save Queequeg, but on the other hand. The change that was made here is so small and yeah, but Danny, go on.
3: Yeah. Uh, so, if we may think of another musical where they discuss
0: changing something and changing the ending, we could turn to Hades Town. Oh yes. yes. We talked about this in the lost recording, and I would love to. You know, we can't repeat in every detail, but I think that discussion was really fruitful.
2: It's a good discussion. We should sing it again. <laughs>
0: Because, yeah, uh, Town. you know, it, it isn't, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it's, it's a musical retelling of the, like, mythological story of Orpheus and Eurydice, which is a, like, Greek tragedy. And it starts out, like, telling you in this kind of, like, introductory song that this is a tragic narrative. It's a sad song, but we're going to sing it again. And there's this sense that, like, on the one hand this story is not going to be changed because we're going to go to the tragic ending. Like, we're telling you from day from the first moment, this is going to be the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, so he is going to look back, she's going to be trapped in Hades forever, and he's going to be alone. That's going to happen. At the same time, the way that it's framed, we're going to sing it again, the uh, very, like, purposeful from moment one, like, kind of, uh, musical vibe mm-hmm. of Hadestown. Like, Hadestown really picks a musical genre of, like, kind of, um, like, bluesy folk rock. And really, like, sticks its flag in that.
2: Yeah, um, it's set in a sort of pseudo-Great Depression kind of setting. It's got a very clear, like, jazz age flavor to it. Yeah, it, it,
0: te- <laughs> it tells you this is a version of Orpheus and Eurydice, and part of the way it tells you that is by having a really thematically clear like musical genre and like kind of um yeah like vague time period interpretation and then even just in the title of the show by calling it Hades Town it's like okay our story's not a literal repetition of the story of Orpheus and Eurydice it's not about uh Hades it's about like a Hades it's about a Hades town so it's like oh we're making a reinterpretation of this narrative like In this new American context, with these, like, new variations, also our new reinterpretation is going to, in a certain sense, be fundamentally the same. Um, And and there's almost a way in which keeping the core fundamentally the same allows all the other variation, right? That's the way you can say this is still Orpheus and Eurydice, even though lots of stuff has been changed, the characters have been changed, it's a completely different like kind of historical feeling um is because the like really really core stuff remains and because this show is not in any way like reinterpreting moby dick right like this is not moby dick as if it took place in a different place or time
2: moby dick in space yeah it's
0: not doing that Ooh. in the way that hades town does and so it ends up like, because there isn't a coherent idea about the ways that this changes Moby Dick, it ends up claiming that the only ways that it's going to change Moby Dick are in these tiny little thematically insignificant ways, and it's just like, that's not what you did!
2: Yeah, it's... One of the things about Town that I think is really excellent in the musical is the fact that it sets up from the beginning, this is a tragedy, these... this is the fate of the characters, this is what is going to happen, and it puts so much effort into making you as an audience member Desperately want that not to be true And hope that it won't be true And like, even though you know what's going to happen You know how this ends You know how this has to end You are desperately Desperately hopeful That maybe, just maybe It ends differently this time And then it doesn't, it doesn't end differently But that tension is incredibly powerful
3: Yeah Yeah. And it does it right <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yes
4: Mm-hmm and I don't know, I think you simply have to establish the meaning of something like that before you make do something that we're supposed to care about with it.
1: Yeah,
2: I mean I think I think there is a thing that's being communicated here, but it's in connection with a bunch of the environmental stuff that some of the stuff yeah, that hits no. us the oh, worst. Man. Of anything in this musical.
0: So we could move on if we want, potentially, uh, from the bird stuff, which I think we've basically agreed is kind of an incoherent statement, to something that I. I would. I would like to mention the West African polyrhythms. Oh, yes. oh yeah, that's, yeah, very that's very where I'm going. That's where
2: I'm stupid.
3: going. I'd like to put it. Oh oh oh! Sorry, sorry, I'd like sorry. To put go, a do pin it, go ahead. In.
2: I will. I would like to return to the bird thing because I think that once we've gone through the next bit, the bird thing will suddenly throw, be thrown into a new focus.
0: Okay, but what we're talking about now is the the sperm whale clicks and yes, the West African polyrhythms <laughs> because uh, yeah, there's some sperm whale clicking that gets heard and. Uh, uh, Teshtego, uh mystically interprets the speech of whales to Dagu in the same way he's been doing in these inter- in sections, and what he says about the clicking of sperm whales is that, he says uh, sperm whales don't sing, they click, each one on a different beat, but they come together, they intersect to make up a whole, and then Dagu's response to that is, like West African polyrhythms <laughs> and it's it's the stupidest shit it's not what sperm whale clicking is. Yeah, like.
4: the sperm whales don't sing. Yeah, like... They're like, their clicking is not soft. Yes,
0: and, and it's not like... Like, what's being claimed here is that sperm whale clicking is like this sort of beautiful... Social. Social thing where, like, different sounds come together to make up a whole. Which, uh, first of all, it's very... There was a, there's a thing I want to get to about how, like, why did that have to be African polyrhythms and not some other metaphor, but, um, but that's just not really what our current scientific understanding of sperm whale clicking is. Like, there are, it's not like we know for sure there's no social element to it. Like, there may be, there's some possibility that sperm whales are using clicking for communication in the way that, say, like, blue whales use singing with each other. But, the thing that we know for sure that sperm whale clicking does is that it allows them to echolocate to their prey. <laughs> like, it's it's for hunting. It's for killing.
2: Yeah. Um, sperm whales are some of the most terrifying creatures in the ocean. Like, they hunt giant squid, which are also some of the most terrifying things in the ocean. There's this yep. fantastic little, uh, I think it was like a Twitter thread or something, that's just like, uh, Nature has damned sperm whales to daily catabasis as they descend into hell, ...for their basic sustenance, and it has equipped them with the tools to do so. And, like, a sperm whale is Leviathan. It is a massive monster, one of the largest predators in all of Earth history... ...just capable of taking on squid and winning, capable of taking on a wooden ship and winning... ...according to Ishmael, with some pretty good citations. And it's got giant teeth, it hunts super hard... And this musical wants to make them into the most hippie-ish image of what a whale is you could possibly present.
0: Yeah, um, and the West African polyrhythms thing, it's like, it's so offensive, I think, because there's nothing about what this section is describing narratively about its dumb imagined idea of sperm whale clicking. That is... It's blue
2: whale singing, but they're sperm whales because we need sperm whales to be blue whales.
0: Right, but this idea of, like, many different parts coming together to make up a whole, that is, like, not unique to West African polyrhythms. That is just, like, a basic concept in music.
2: Yep, worldwide. <laughs> uh, turns out... Um, now, to be fair, we have no strong evidence that Malloy is aware of complicated vocal harmonies.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, it does sort of seem like Malloy is like, damn... The idea of complex musical parts coming together to make up a whole. It would be fascinating if Western music had a way of doing that. But it simply can't be done.
3: (laughs) It simply can't be done. So he turns it into, like, look, white people, West Africa has music too.
2: And, like, West Africa is the concept of community. Did you know that only people who are closer to nature have the idea of, like, communities that are close-knit and come together? And this is a special quality that belongs to special people. Unlike us, the sinful white people. And it's just like that's not actually seeing or engaging with another culture or another musical tradition. That's projecting onto it the things you feel your tradition has failed to have or has lost and seeing only that, despite the fact that I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that in the vast set of traditions that use polyrhythms and complex drumming and all these things that are being referenced here, at least some of them are songs about things like War and kingship and power and, you know, the kind of things that songs are about because societies don't boil down to the bits that you personally think are cool about them because you are, Dave Malloy, a white American liberal. But, yeah. you know, I'm sure that uh, only white people have ever invented morally complicated or morally questionable art.
1: Mm, true, true. Uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> 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 and... uh, uh
2: yeah, no, it's. Yes. I guess
3: on that note, uh, <laughs> the last song of.
0: The, yeah, that. Or is it the, the last Epilogue? Yeah.
2: Well, I do want to briefly the mention the, uh, the Doomerism here. Oh, sunk. Yeah. yes. The ship is not sinking. The ship is already yeah. sunk. Yes, the ship is not sinking. The ship is already sunk. I actually quite like the music in this bit because it does have multiple parts coming together with uh, different. It, I don't think it's polyrhythms by any means, but it's certainly got a little bit of harmony. It's got multiple, like, tunes, so that's nice. Um, but. And it sounds nice, but the the ship is not sinking. The ship is already sinking. That's like that is a spoken motif that showed up, I think, at the very beginning. And it's really unclear to me exactly what that means, other than American society is already fucked. It cannot be saved. You can't bail it out. We're just going to have to hope that we don't take the ecosystem with us as we collapse into nothing. Bye bye humanity. We had a good run. Sorry that uh, you know uh, Dagoo and Teshtega and by extension you know, all people of color are going to be dragged along with, you know, as nature eliminates white people in order to save itself. Um... It's it's bad in that fashion, but it's also bad in that this explains why saving the bird was the thing that Malloy wanted to do. Because he's like, oh, this bird, this just, you know, natural creature living in nature, it didn't, de- you know, it didn't deserve to suffer. We can, you know, humans may be, you know, driving ourselves extinct. Our boat may be sinking and sunk, but the ecosystem can continue to exist. We can spare the bird. And it's just like... You can spare the bird, but not the idea of, like, any other society other than America maybe surviving. You can spare the bird, but not, like, think about the people involved here. There's even this, like, bit about how uh, Tashigo and Degu don't have children. That's very odd.
0: Yeah, like, mm. they- they Degu asks Tashigo if he has children, and Tashigo says, no, I never did. And it's like, why does this even here- like, it, it even feels- Because, like, these interviews have been all about kind of giving Degu and Tashtego this sort of characterization and this kind of space off to the side that they don't have in the novel. And it's like, so why don't you give them kids if you want? Like, you can just make up families for them if you wanted to. Uh, But no. You can do whatever you want. This is your fan fiction. Yeah, yeah. But no, they don't have children and, like, they don't have any connection to any social context. Uh, we want to use them to gesture at the idea of people of color, but, like, the cultures that they might theoretically have come from, if they were real people, are totally absent from this narrative. Uh, the- The mournful thing that Teshtego is singing at the end of this, in his kind of, like, role of, like, noble, crying Indian, (laughs) is a biblical reference. He's saying the great Ah! shroud of the sea rolls on as it rolled 5,000 years ago, that's- In the novel, it's talking about the biblical flood. Like... Yeah? We're gonna talk about West African polyrhythms, we're gonna have these, like, men of color who make some kind of reference to a world outside of whiteness, but all the things that they say and that they do are just repeating
2: the novel and repeating the
0: the novel and repeating the whiteness of the novel and repeating Dave Malloy's very white opinions
2: (laughs) yeah also the thing with no kids does really connect to that thing we were talking about with the Rachel with the idea that oh you need a feminized character in some way you need a character with some you know uh feminine qualities in order to have kids that you're concerned about in the narrative guys can't just have kids or at the very least... Guys can't have kids. Yeah. Guys don't feel love.
3: That's what it... That's the. That's what yeah. the musical or is saying. Or maybe...
2: Or at the very least, they can't, like... They should have had some kind of connection to some context in order to have that, and they don't, and arguably, you know, the not having kids is the result of... I mean, I'm sure Malloy is thinking about it in terms of, like, uh, you know, millennials are having children later or not having children as much. Like, there's various things that you can see in American society that that could be connected to, but it does stand out as a very odd event here and similarly uh the thing with the bird is like why do they care about this bird about that kind of like spare the environment but not all these lives moment and even sparing the environment is sparing a bird it's it's just very weak and unimpressive in a lot of ways and it's even worse when you think about what the bird means in the novel uh because there's a whole complex thing where ahab's soul and like his noble qualities are associated with uh birds the catskill eagle in his soul which flies uh you know higher than a bird of the plains even when it is down amid the valleys of the mountains so even in his moments of despair and darkness and uh rage uh it is still the case that Ahab has this, like, nobility and greatness to him. And that's part of what the bird of heaven being dragged down is about. Or maybe it's about, you know, Ahab as sort of satanic and opposed to God and winning some small victory even though he loses overall against Moby Dick. There's a bunch of stuff that bird can mean, and it's such a fascinating specific image. And here it is just being used to mean a bird, you know, like the kinds we have in nature. (sighs) (sighs)
1: Yeah. <sighs>
2: <sighs> well this song is not sinking this song has already sunk so <laughs>
3: this musical has already sunk
2: yeah let's uh... let's roll on also there's this weird return to the like come hither brokenhearted here is another life there where it's at least connected to the idea that that's like describing death so that's nice i guess but <sighs> oh wow you're totally right that the uh by the way mark mark brought up a uh thing that the, like, refrain of bye-bye in this song was referencing Pip saying bye-bye little fishies earlier in the both musical and in the book very briefly. And yes, that appears to be a a callback. So again, we have the occasional thing that would be a motif or maybe shaped like a motif in a musical, but in whatever this is, it's not.
3: (sighs) Yeah, no, it's just, it's three coincidences stacked in a trench coat.
1: Yeah! (laughs) And then we
0: just have the epilogue, which I'm pronouncing that way because that's how it's spelled on the Genius page. It's very funny, dude. And it's just basically <laughs> literally quoting from the novel, the, the epilogue of the novel, where Ishmael is like, and this is how I miraculously survived, and uh, <laughs> that's really all it is in the show as well.
2: Yeah, there's nothing to it.
0: I'm checking to make sure that the epilogue isn't spelled, spelled epilogue
3: in the, in the book. In the playbill. In the playbill. <laughs> <On> the playbill.
2: <laughs> I really
0: it spelled odd. normally. It were,
3: I just had to check. it were. It wasn't, unfortunately. Damn. I thought that would have been very funny. Just like the last nail in the coffin for, for the musical. Oh,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's the epilogue. Um, uh, that's, we've returned to Whale Song at the end. We've dealt with the chase. We've, you know, there are songs that loop in your head, but thankfully none of these because they're not very catchy.
0: Yeah, and we've learned that, like, all of humanity must die for the sins of whiteness, but, like, maybe a bird will survive.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's... Maybe a bird
0: will survive. A bird and Ishmael.
2: Because
0: he lives. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's...
0: What if the change he made to the end was to kill Ishmael?
2: <laughs> I mean, it would be <laughs> Whoa. And I, Ishmael, also died! You're speaking Ooh. to a ghost! I just think it would be Cool. also i
0: hate this ishmael and i want him dead
2: (laughs) yeah this ishmael is so i mentioned the idea that like i wanted to return to the idea of a a version of this musical that is scattershot and weird and just has a bunch of like random bits from moby dick assembled into something like a musical I think you could do that, and I think the like if you made each song a big number with like a cool theme and a different genre, and have Ishmael maybe talking about how he relates these things, and do go really deep on your version of Ishmael is just explaining all the things that are left implicit in the novel, and basically making an argument, a musical version of the whiteness of the whale and the whaling chapters, and like here's Queequeg, he here's who he is and why he matters to me, and it's just a bunch of portraits. It probably wouldn't have a lot of driving narrative, but neither does cats. You don't need <laughs> one. You can do a Farago, you can do a mix of things. And I think that that would have worked much better with this idea of, oh, you know, a big towering, you know, story about God and whiteness and monomania and monom sorry, monomaniacism is the way he put it, and like, you know, the nation and so on, but this is only a draft of a draft, ah, time cash. You know, uh, inspiration and money and, you know, whatever the things he said you needed to make an actual story, you could present this as, like, Ishmael trying to make sense of things and bringing it all together, and then the thematic incoherence would work better. But the problem is that this doesn't think it's thematically incoherent or even like it's just excavating a bunch of weird things in Moby Dick and re- and putting them out on stage. It thinks it's encapsulating Moby Dick. It thinks it's capturing Moby Dick as a whole and presenting it in the form of a musical. And it's not. Yep. Or at the very least it's and doing it badly. It's producing something bad.
3: It, they just I think they just forgot to put the good in it. <laughs>
2: they <sighs> forgot
3: to make it good.
2: I mean, how's that possible? He clipped out some of the best lines in the book and stuck them in the script. <laughs> oh, it
3: beats me. It's it's a mystery.
2: Oh, yeah. I... He
3: even changed all of the little problematic bits. <laughs> yeah, def- the audience in 2019 could understand that those bits were problematic, and then he fixed it.
2: Yeah. He put a big white bust of Melville in the middle of the stage in order for the characters to, like, Ritually excoriate Melville And like talk about how weird And off he is And how he doesn't understand science It's This musical is so ashamed of liking Moby Dick That despite coming out the gate With my one of my favorite books It means a lot to me when I've lost someone And so on He couldn't commit to any specific interpretation of it Because he was worried that people would go Oh you got that out of the book I just got that it was racist
3: yeah, it's it's just this idea I see happening over and over again in contemporary adaptations where it's ashamed of being from a certain, like, source material. Like, Marvel movies, as they went on, were just progressively more and more ashamed of being based on comic books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of, like, just uh, no... No, like, piece of genre media seems to exist without some reference to, like, oh, but this can't happen in real life. That would be ridiculous. Ugh. Now let's get back to the action. Whales aren't supposed and it's... to
2: do that.
3: Whales can't do that. And it. I... I just wish that some things could commit. Like, if you... I, I don't know I I would prefer a reconstruction to a deconstruction nowadays. Yeah. Just because I feel like people don't know how to do a deconstruction, so it's like it's like that meme of the mom holding like the toys away from the kids. I feel like that's me with deconstructions at this point because like I know they can be done super well if you know how to do it, but most people don't, and that's the case with this musical. I just want to like take all of like, every book ever written and just hold it in a box just outside of Dave Malloy's reach.
0: God. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a beautiful conclusion. Um, I would, I would love to wrap this up now because yeah, we've been recording fair. for almost three and a half hours. Um, the, uh. uh, just before we go, um, I know we did kind of, uh, record like a clip of this, um, but I did just want to give you two, Danny and Clay, the chance to, uh, describe to our listeners, um, the other cool stuff that you do on the internet, if you'd mm-hmm. like to.
3: We do a lot of cool stuff on the internet. Uh well, so the thing that Clay and I sort of have done together a little project was uh the last show, which is an audio drama podcast about a college radio show that survives the end of the world. And it's uh it's set in Boston and we've got a funky cult of English majors and a scary robot god and a business school turned like totalitarian government. It's uh, it's very fun. All of our friends are on it, and we had a very fun time doing it. Uh, I composed the music for it, which you can listen to on uh, SoundCloud dot slash the last show, and you can find that podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, that's kind of that. What do you yeah, do, Clay?
4: <laughs> I write tabletop role playing game things. Specifically, if you like Moby Dick, you'll probably lo- and you like want the game Wanderhome. I wrote the Oversea Wander Home, which is a supplement for Wander Home, which is a game about animals traveling through a war-torn but now peaceful land. Um, I added the ocean to it.
1: Nice. And the good. ocean
4: in its mythopoetic like majesty, and there's big monsters in the ocean, so you know, and they, have, they can probably make a whirlpool if you want, <laughs> um, you can find that at klubi.itch.io or just you know it's linked in a lot of groups of wander home content and then we have one more show we're working on right
3: yes we do oh also i did the illustrations for the wander home oh yeah just uh a little collaboration there so we are currently working on another audio drama podcast and this one's called another man's poison with carver levine which uh I like to describe it. So it's food horror, but in a, and um, Parts Unknown meets Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. It's about this sort of food podcast host and his producer. And they kind of go around the country, perhaps the world, like looking at these very strange, weird, magical, maybe not magical food places. Mm. Um, and I think it's going to be very fun. It's a little bit weird. It's kind of, we want this to be our ongoing project. So we're going to be... You know, coming up with new fucked up food to have every episode, and I think it's going to be very fun.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, remind me, um, you you have like a an Instagram for um, d- yes. for uh, another man's poison, right? Is that correct? <gasps> okay,
3: uh, yeah, we have it for our sort of uh, our podcast ch- network. Now um, no, we uh, we have a bunch of friends who like to do podcast stuff, and we're kind of trying to like coalesce everything into this one easy to access place so you can find us on instagram at wasteland radio productions all one word also if you want to find us on twitter i am at berserker dan dan so you can find me there um you have a twitter right
4: oh i do um this is also a way you can get to my thing what i wrote which is at clay dante t
0: yeah um and uh so I, I, that's, that's pretty much, uh, your stuff. Was there anything else that you two wanted to mention as far as, uh, your kind of internet presence or cool stuff that you want people to know about?
3: I think that's about it. Mm-hmm.
0: Cool. Yeah. Um, people can also, uh, find me on Twitter if they want to, uh, at Char blunt. Um, and I'm on another podcast, um, which has been on a bit of a hiatus, but, uh, I suspect by the time this episode comes out, that may not be true. Um uh another podcast uh called Ars arcanum um which is about uh reading the books of um Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere uh world setting mega series mega series yeah reading Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere novels uh in order um and uh that's like a, a we also talk about like other kind of science fiction and fantasy novels it's uh it's a fun fun show that I do with a couple of my other friends um mm-hmm.
2: And uh, I actually have a bit more of online presence than last time, because I finally made an itch page. Um mm, At uh, silkandstone uh, on itch.io. My Twitter handle is also silkandstone, all one word. Um, I think I have a link pinned on my uh, Twitter to that, um, but possibly not. And, uh, yeah, I've currently got one little GMless game about being- about, uh, describing magical items that you have collected, uh, to each other. It's inspired by the way that, uh, Dark Souls, Bloodborne, the whole FromSoft sphere does story via item descriptions, and I thought it would be fun to mess around in that. But I plan to have other things there, hopefully relatively soon. Um, and, you know, keep an eye out for that. Hopefully? Maybe? Someone? Please? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, and, uh... Clay, Danny, thank you so much for joining us on this epic and awful adventure through the <laughs> absolute nautical hellscape that is Moby Dick 2019, a musical reckoning, Dave Malloy Zone, a Malloy production. I don't know. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Some, some nautical nonsense here, for sure. Oh, yeah. See... Nautical nonsense. Be something I wish. But that's not what I got out of this. Um, anyways, but no,
3: thank you, thank you for inviting us. On this is very, uh, very fun to do. So we needed to detox from having watched the show, and this was a good way to do mm-hmm. that.
4: Uh, you know, this was talk therapy, <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, therapy because you know trauma distorts time. time. Or... Yep, yep.
1: Uh,
2: yeah. yep, yep. Uh, there are some there are some musicals that loop in your head. <laughs> uh, but so, do we want to do the outro?
0: Uh, yeah, I was gonna say, if, if uh, everyone's up for it, we can uh, do the little outro again, which...
2: Uh, to remind those who have not been with us for a yeah, couple months. Yeah, so
0: the, the outro that we normally do is that one person says, uh, What tune is it you pull to, men? And then the other person responds, A dead whale or a stove boat. And uh, the thing that we did the last couple episodes, if you'll recall, was that we all tried to say that at once, and it became a bit of a mess, uh, and that's fine. Um, so do you want to do that again? I,
2: may I make a request? Clay? Yeah. Clay, could you could you do the Mister Krabs voice for what <laughs> tune is he You pull to
3: <laughs> No,
2: boy. Oh,
4: okay, I love. I'm this. looking
3: for it because I I need to remember the phrase. I'm looking. It's. I'm scrolling past it to her in our chat. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um,
0: I could also just like send it to you now. I found okay. it. I found yep. it.
4: I found fantastic, it. We're good. Fantastic. Okay. Arr, arr, arr. What tune is it you pull
0: two men? A A dead dead whale whale or or a stove stove boat. boat. Amazing. Thank you so much, gentlemen. That's cinema, baby. Uh.